G'day, Game Nation. GM Hurley here. As many of you would have noticed, we here at The Forge have been having a bit of a hiatus. Uh, this episode was recorded back in early January and has sat on our server for a while now. Uh, there are many reasons for this, including Chris changing jobs and me having some personal health issues. I won't bore you with the details, but just so you all know, I am fine now, uh, but was very unwell due to the stress and strain of the past 12 months or so. So that's why some of the recording content uh, that you'll hear in the following episode may seem a little dated. Uh, many of us are suffering from the global situation that the COVID crisis has placed us in. And now more than ever, we may need to lean on a friend, a co-worker, your HR manager, your boss, or better yet, your family. And uh, not just your relations either, but us here within the greater Gaming Nation community, including us here at The Forge. Uh, I know if, it, if I wasn't able to, um, I probably would have been in a very different place. And I wanted to publicly thank those of you, particularly Chris himself, um, who have reached out during this time. Uh, I'd also like to thank my partner, Kerry, for her love and support, uh, that of my four sons, and to everyone who was spared me a thought during this time. Uh, I'd also like to thank our top-tier patron of Jason Holloway for his continued support, and to all those other amazing Patreon supporters who continue and still continue to support us through this difficult time. Uh, if you would like to become part of the Forge community, you can learn more at patreon.com forward slash Forge Genesis. And for as little as $2 a month, you can help support this very podcast to uh, keep on keeping, I guess, uh, in um, continuing to provide you with amazing content. Uh, thank you to all of our fans for reblogging, retweeting, sharing this latest episode along with those who offer support and encouragement for this podcast. It's truly appreciated. For now, however, let's get on with the show. D20 Radio, where gamers roll. Hello, Termination, and welcome to The Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast covering everything that you need to know about the latest and greatest in Edge Studios, Genesis Foundry, and the Genesis role-playing game. I'm your host, GM Hooley, and tonight we have what we can only hope is a simply fascinating show where we're going to kick off a new series of episodes all about creating equipment in Genesis, which is going to be hugely exciting. Uh, but also, we're going to be welcoming to the show an amazing new guest to talk about one of the more intriguing Foundry settings to be released in a good while. It's going to be a wild episode, so um, jump on board. It's going to be great. But before all of that, let me introduce you to the man who is the cream in my coffee, the butter in my fly, and the Vegemite on my morning toast. It's GM Chris. Chris. Uh -oh. 
Ugh, Vegemite. Ugh. <laughs> Not like Vegemite. Vegemite and toast is amazing. Ugh. Tastes like tastes like toe jam. Ugh. <laughs> it is an acquired taste. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? I am happy to be the cream in your coffee. Um <laughs> <laughs> Although that leads to some illusions I'd rather not make. No. Um, you know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's quickly move away from that. <laughs> <laughs> How was your Christmas? And, and Happy New Year as well. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Uh, I, had, I had a phenomenal holiday. Um, a, a wonderful socially distanced holiday. Mm. For the for the I was going to say for the whole family, but no, it's a wonderfully socially distanced holiday for the immediate family. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That's a yeah that 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 was it, and um, I'm 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 so I'm getting so old. Like New Year, like New Year's sucked. Like yeah. like we forced ourselves to stay awake, right, right, <laughs> and watch the ball drop and drink a, a glass of really bad champagne, and then and then go okay. Let's go to bed, and we went straight to bed. Mm-hmm. It was it was so pathetic. My my kid couldn't even stay up till I got a ten year old couldn't even stay up till midnight. <laughs> Look, that's uh, that's similar to the meme where uh, where it's like it's like twenty three fifty nine, and then it's Happy New Year, and then one minute past, it's like everyone's asleep. Yeah, we're the uh, same. Yeah, yeah. Too. <laughs> yeah that's, that's pretty much it. How were how was uh, how how was your holidays on the on the other side of the world where you get what? to experience holidays in the summer? Yes, we do, and it was bloody hot. <laughs> that's all I can say. Uh, no, it was good. I worked most over Christmas, so uh, so that was you know good for the old uh, back pocket. Uh, but um, you know, we we got to um, play some games. The kids really uh, got stuck into Dungeons and Dragons. Um, so, uh, they've been hearing about it, uh, from kids at school. So, um, I said, sure, I can run that. It's been ages since I've touched anything D20 and uh, no, it was a lot of fun. Really fun. Uh, I've been running it for, uh, for Ethan, um, at his school, uh, but he's finished school now, but the school has asked me to come back, which is great, um, to, uh, to do some role playing with them. Um, but, uh, yeah, the kids have been having a ball. So, um, yeah, I've been keeping myself occupied. Uh, started a new hobby, fish collecting. That's interesting because I'm not busy enough. Uh, <laughs> and I've yeah, been- I, dude, I, I love I love collecting fish. Um, trout uh, is really good. Salmon, um, uh, really catfish as well down here. With, like with some with some nice blackened with some good butter. I love <laughs> I love adding that to my collection. Yeah, yeah, not that sort of fish collecting, but uh, not for consumption anyway. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> I'm glad the fish aren't within hearing distance. Anyway, moving along. <laughs> so uh, it's it's been a fun holiday, uh, and uh, I'm but I'm really glad to be back on the uh, the podcasting bandwagon. Uh, so uh, looking forward to this episode in a uh, in a huge way. So it's going to be great. Oh yeah, well. Well, P. Sherman, uh, <laughs> uh, fish fish collector. Um, <laughs> although you're. Well, you're cl- you're not in Sydney, but you're closer to Sydney than I. That's for damn sure. Um, <laughs> we got a lot to get into. You want to head that way? Absolutely. That sounds like a fantastic idea. So um, let's get those coal fires burning and start with stoking the fire. Stoking the fire. And welcome to Stoking the Fire, a segment dedicated to letting you know all there is to know about the releases from the Genesis Foundry and the Genesis role-playing game. But first, Chris, 
Would you like to tell us about the D20 Radio podcast of the week? Of course. Okay, okay, okay. So so I know we just we just did them as our podcast of the week. Mm-hmm. But selfishly, we're going to return <laughs> <laughs> to to highlight the Me and Steve Talk RPGs podcast. Yeah. Um so as we talked about last episode, this this show grew from its eponymous host Steve and Steve finding themselves spending hours in the parking lot after their game sessions talking about the other non-mainstream RPG games they love to play or that they wanted to get to play or get on the table and they just decided to take that discussion and their shared love to the airwaves, right? Right. Um and they explore varied RPG options that will will tickle uh your listeners sense of the new and wondrous. But the reason I want to return to the Me and Steve Talk RPGs podcast is because after guest hosting with them uh back on episode 11 to talk all about Genesis, I actually Huli got to run a one shot for them mm-hmm. in Genesis. That's awesome. And I've listened to the first episode and uh, I've got the second episode, which has just been released at the time of our recording, um, which uh, is ready for download and um, ready for my listing pleasure. It was I amazing. know. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. So we, we, we ran a, a nice, a nice, you know, like almost five hour session. Um mm. And they're they're splitting it up into into multiple released actual play episodes. Um, and at, at the time of this recording, obviously, uh, session zero and encounter one are already up for listening. Mm-hmm. Um, so, guys, honestly, if you're keen for some Genesis live play, um, it's right there for you. Uh, the uh, half this crew had n- had no outside of reading about it and talking about it had never played with narrative dice before. Mm-hmm. Um, and no one had played Genesis before, although we did have a couple of Star Wars veterans in the group. Yeah. Um, so they, they, they got it pretty quick, but dude, yeah, we, we had a lot of fun. Um, and if you're, if you want to hear it and hear more of me yammer away on a microphone, uh, like I know what I'm doing, you can, <laughs> you can, you can listen and you guys can find that and more amazing gaming and geekery podcasts right now, just by heading to d20 radio.com. Absolutely. And after you've given this fantastic podcast to listen, make sure you also check out the amazing blog articles over at t20radio.com. And can I just say about me and Steve Talk RPGs, it is well worth your while to go back and listen to the beginning of all of their episodes. They're a fascinating listen. Um, and uh, for, really an old, for an old school person like me, um, reliving some of the, uh, the the titles that they're talking about in RPGs that you may have forgotten. Uh, I was listening last night to one of the episodes where they talked about all the different dice mechanics from a whole range of different systems. And I'm going, I haven't touched that for ages. Maybe I'd like to go back and try that again. So, uh, you know, you can reminisce till your heart's content. It's really, really good. Um, but, uh, also the other thing that I'd recommend is definitely take a listen to that session zero that you did, uh, with, uh, with the guys. It's, uh, it's fantastic for anyone who has never, ever played before. Uh, that's Genesis that is. And, um, yeah, you, you'll get a lot out of it. It's really, really good. And while pursuing the interwebs, why not head over to the Genesis Foundry at DriveThruRPG, where you can find the latest and greatest Foundry releases for the Genesis RPG. Uh, we've had quite a bit of releases since our last episode in December, Chris, haven't we? Oh, yeah, we have. So, um, I mean, honestly, before we, we do our, our, our spotlight focus for the episode, I think it might be worthwhile to run them down. Yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> at the time of this recording... Um, we've had, we've had quite a few things released. Um, there was the Genesis, the, the Genesis vehicle companion, mm-hmm. um, uh, from, 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 uh, from Seabeck himself, Christopher Ruthenbeck. Yep. 
um, which kind of expands on the core rulebook and the expanded player's guide for kind of a deep dive into the minutia of vehicle creation. Yeah. Very interesting supplement. From Neil Cobb, uh, we had another in the hilarious Hero Time series, um, <laughs> which is The Arena, uh, which is all about how to run gladiator games. Yeah. Uh, which which was which was kind of cool. Mm. One that I thought was amazing and and helped helped read through when it was still in playtesting uh, was the latest from Keith Ryan Capel um, mm. and High Metric Games. Uh, Factions One, a factions talent supplement. Keith has created a new subsystem for adding faction alignments and abilities for players and adversaries. Mm-hmm. Sixty five new talents. Mm five generic factions that could be applied to myriad settings um, and a whole lot more really worth checking out adds a whole lot to your campaigns the uh chris the machine markham uh as he does hit us up with like three titles over the holiday uh Mm. fantastic factions speaking of factions Mm -hmm. um organizations in minara uh which actually we're talking about used keith Kappel's faction subsystem to introduce (laughs) 10 new Terranoth focused factions and 50 associated talents for Terranoth and its factions. Yep. Um, he also released uh, Legendary Locations 2, which is a new like gazetteer for uh, Terranoth locations. He's already released one. And he released Grand Star Alliance Gear, which is a gear guide for the Alliance um, in Keyforged. Um, mm. Obviously, uh, hinting on the fact that he's going to be uh, pl- planning on gear guides for the other factions as well mm. <laughs> uh also a couple other things we had boost number five the latest in the uh the, the book of online source triumphs so sort of you know magazine mm-hmm. weird west which explores the uh, genre bash that i love so much of weird occult and western very cool and of course authored by various brains in the genesis discord server um in this case anubis chris markham craftador uh michael shalom kesselman and kyle sharp mm. uh, excuse me kyle scarp scarpy yeah. Sorry, Scarpy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this uh, boost gets better every single time it comes it out. Doesn't it? it doesn't it's it? Really, really good. Uh, I know that I've sort of thrown my hand up if they want some assistance as well. So um, it's just a matter of finding one that I'm more interested in. Uh, but um, yeah, it's it's really good, really good. Yeah, but yeah. With, really but, um, uh, one that I was heavily involved in as well, and I was so happy that uh, that I got got asked to be involved. Uh, and that's uh, Jared Matthew has um, given us the Shadow Shop. Now it's a brand new magic supplement that is. Um, it's going to also be our spotlight product for this episode. Well, uh, not only I, I, you, you know, I love magic in the system. Okay. Mm. So yep. I've been I've been following this product's development with keen interest. Um, yep. But but you mentioned that you assisted on this. Yeah, I did. So um, I played the part of, of principal editor and proofreader on this product. Um, and uh, it's a magical supplement that builds on our new kinds of magic use in Genesis that focuses on the idea of spirit magic or blood magic with, with a very New Orleans flair. Yeah. It, it's great. Magic with roots in, in real-world practices that have evolved to, uh, you know, a mythology that infuses hundreds of stories and, and role-playing opportunities. Um, the ideas that were coming out of my head when I was reading through uh, the manuscript by Jared was just, I was blown away. Now, most listeners will probably know Jared uh, as the uh, creator of the incredible salvage setting, uh, which also won a couple of Forge Awards uh, in 2020. 
but uh, this is his sophomore publication, and it focuses on a more generic rule supplement uh, that uh, that exists outside of a specific setting that can sort of be plugged in. Um, so in a nutshell, The Shadow Shop is a guide told in a fun and somewhat unique style uh, with a graphic design that we've come to love from Jared. And when I first saw him, um, I wasn't sort of privy to all of that stuff going on in the background. It was amazing. Uh, and it really explores in details the, the Crimson Arts or Spirit Magic, which is inspired uh, by the very real-world uh, spiritual practices such as Louisiana voodoo, low country hoodoo, Haitian voodoo, and and others. And, you know, Huli, I'm, I'm grateful to see this. There is actually, I, I want to call this out, there is a lengthy word count at the start of this supplement um, in which Jared actually discusses and acknowledges the real-world history of the actual beliefs that have inspired this and also touches on the the, the tragic history of slavery and segregation and revolution that actually birthed them in their various forms. You know, yeah. when, when, when we create imagination through role-playing games, we always have to be mindful to never mock or disrespect, as, as early 20th century authors, quite frankly, made a career of doing, real-world belief systems. Um, and Jared's acknowledgement of this real history and this this also admonishment to the reader to 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 research and, and learn that history. I mean, well, I I actually did some research and reading, and it was like, like because of what he wrote, and it was fascinating and, yeah. and beautiful. Um, so I, I I wanted to thank Jared for presenting this so respectfully. Absolutely, yeah, you're certainly not wrong. And from you know that fascinating cultural touchstone, uh, Jared has created a wonderfully detailed inspiration for these new types of magic types. The uh, you know this this includes, as you might imagine, the introduction of a new knowledge skill, which is uh, ritual and spiritual world, uh, as well as three new ritual skills, curiosities trance and blood magic uh rituals work like exactly like magic but with a few key differences most notably they cost you something <laughs> uh, so with with blood magic for example uh you know it causes the caster to suffer wounds to be able to cast them while trance rituals place the caster in a in a highly vulnerable state uh but more than that the 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 entire book, uh, all fifty six pages of it, uh, gives you even more um, to put the the bayou and the big easy sort of feel into any setting that that you might have. Um, you know, not only are there two new species, which was great to see. Um, they were introduced. One called the Marshlings and the other one called the Spree. Uh, the Spree are fascinating. Um, and, yeah, they are. Can't wait to get them on the table. Uh, four new careers, uh, and also uh, added from uh, you know the the night hunter to the witch doctor, um, and twenty three new talents, which was great. Uh, which I thought was a, a good amount for a new setting book, um, yeah. setting of sorts, and uh, you know which focuses on ritual magic and other thematically cool stuff. Um, and it does harken back to a lot of the things that we've talked about uh, during the podcast, uh, that it takes those things into talent, including, you know, rewriting things so that it fits the setting a little bit more. So really, really good there. Um, new magic implements, potions, totems, and, and even weapons 
Uh, and of course, we have some great adversaries. So, uh, and things that you can just reskin if you need to. Um, and a host of information and background for a setting based in New Orleans and the uh, Louisiana Bayou. It's fantastic. I can't talk yeah. about the product enough. But you know, for me, obviously, the with my proclivities, the Big Bang and the supplement were the seven new rituals or, or spells, to use Genesis mm-hmm. lingo, um, <clears throat> governed by these new ritual skills. Um, yeah. They're very fun. They include things like animate, bind, and possess. Mm-hmm. Um and as Huli said, they function like Genesis spells, I mean, with tables of additional effects that can increase difficulty to add more to the base effect. And there is even a special subsystem to actually channel spirits uh, with different types of available spirits, a whole host of them, um, by spending story points, which I loved. Um, different spirits provide the channeler with varied benefits and varied hindrances um, in the check they make. Uh, the, che- the very checks they make um, yeah. while they're possessed, or, or excuse me, while they're channeling, excuse me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, a fascinating subsystem to not only enhance rituals and, and magic usage, and and that alone, whether you use the rituals or not, is something that can port into virtually any setting. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, t- totally great. It's uh, it's certainly good if you if you have someone who's a bit of a channeler or uh, like a warlock type uh, character uh, that you really want to have something a little bit different uh, for Terranoth. It's uh, it's a great import there, so I would highly recommend it for that. But bottom line, this product is superb. Um, it gives you a lot of tools to add a special set of rules, as I mentioned, um, and and magic, a new way of doing magic to your games. Uh, and it's well worth the $6.99 price tag. Um, so, yeah, well done, Jared. Well done. It's uh, it's amazing. And uh, I know we'll have Jared on the show very soon to uh, to discuss the Shadow Shop as well. But uh, all in all, just some great products, and you can find them including the Shadow Shop and so much more fantastic Genesis Foundry content over at drivethroughrpg.com by simply performing a search using the words Genesis Foundry. And speaking of the Foundry, as we have been, mm-hmm. Holy, we've seen a lot of equipment guides come through lately, haven't we? We have. We certainly have. What do you say we uh, maybe talk about that in a little more detail, huh? I would like nothing more, to be honest, Chris. <laughs> what say we stride on into the furnace? The furnace. And welcome to the furnace, the segment where we take a deep dive into a topic concerning custom creations using the Genesis role-playing game. Now, tonight we're going to kick off a brand new series about the Genesis creation by highlighting something we've not really had a chance to dig much into in, uh, in past episodes, and that is weapons, armor, equipment, and gear. Now, this episode will be the first in a short series that talks about the ins and outs of, of creating items. Yes. And as you know, people love to create equipment for RPGs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Genesis obviously gives us a pretty stout tool set to do just that. But the potential pitfalls of equipment creation are varied. Um, and, and it's all too easy to create an overpowered item as it is to create something that no one's ever going to want to use. Mm, you're not wrong. And as we'll see, a lot of that has to do with the effects of the item, balanced against its cost and in some cases, its rarity. 
But beyond that, there are a lot of rules, tricks, tips, and in our case, hard-learned lessons (laughs) (laughs) to ensure that you're creating an item that is not only fun, but it adds to the setting without breaking the rules too much. Yeah. So on tonight's show, guys, we're going to focus on the creation of weapons um, with future episodes devoted to armor and then to gear. Tonight, we are talking about the tools that let you deal damage to adversaries. Mm -hmm. But it's also important to note that though magic implements kind of fall into this category, we will not be covering them tonight. No, we won't. (laughs) And I'm assuming, of course, because we've already done that back in episode 19, uh, demystifying the mystical Genesis and the Goblet of uh, Triumph. Right, Chris? (laughs) Spot on. So if you're looking for how to create implements, episode 19 is right there for you. Tonight's talk is going to be about knives, swords, pistols, rifles, rocket launchers, flamethrowers, plasma cannons, phasers, obsidian spears, slingshots, grenades, slingshotted grenades, ninja (laughs) throwing stars. Crossbows, long rows, really sharp Christmas bows, harsh language. Okay, maybe not harsh language. That um, that's actually another show. Yeah. Um, uh, just just all, all all the weapons, all the weapons, all of them, all of them. <laughs> You're a crazy man. Anyway, uh, let's dive in before Chris's head explodes. Uh, tonight we're going to walk you through the process of weapon creation step by step. And uh, even towards the end, we're going to craft our own weapons here live on the show. So it's going to be fun. (laughs) All right, Chris, where do we start this whole shenanigans? Oh, boy. Okay, okay, okay. So for those of you following along in your storybooks at home, when it comes to to, to weapon creation uh, for your very own games or perhaps your foundry products uh mm-hmm. the genesis core rulebook has all the ins and outs that we're going to be covering highly detailed uh, specifically uh please turn your 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 workbooks class to pages 199 200 and 201 <laughs> um throughout this episode we, we will be referencing the rules in those pages and you you may want to have your book handy and open but i would like to point out this discussion will no doubt also touch heavily on item qualities which is a very important aspects of weapons so i would also recommend that you also either bookmark or put a sticky note on pages 86 through 89 of the genesis core rulebook which detail the majority of the item qualities that we might be referencing in this discussion mm. but i think we also have another big boilerplate that we really do have to talk about yeah <laughs> yeah and it's basically reskinning, <laughs> which which is glorious. Yes. Um, so uh, I know that we say this a lot, and uh, you've also heard it a lot. But now, right now, um, do you hear us? Right now, uh, you need to pay attention, uh, probably to it more than you have before. All right, you got it. Good. Um, <laughs> so, um, if you can rename an existing published weapon. Do it. It will save you a lot of hassle. Just remember that you have to use different wording in the description. So just reword it to suit your setting. Yeah. But basically, that's it. (laughs) That's it. Now, uh, really, there, there's three. There's three reasons that you really want to try and and reskin an existing weapon if you can. Three. Three very important reasons. Mm, What are they? Well, number one, existing weapons have been play tested. Mm-hmm. 
Number two, existing weapons have been play tested. Mm-hmm. And number three, and perhaps the most important reason, existing weapons have been thoroughly play tested. Uh, yes, they have. <laughs> Don't reinvent the wheel is basically what we're saying. So yes. you really have to ask yourself the questions. Does a similar or even an identical weapon exist elsewhere in a published source? Does a similar weapon do what I want this weapon to do? And will creating an entirely new weapon meaningfully add something to my game? Now, if you answer yes to two of the above questions, you might just want to reskin an existing weapon instead. You know, file off the serial numbers and call it something else. And also remember, though this doesn't matter for your home games as much, even if you're publishing this, tabular information can be reused or reprinted without any issue. So if you wanted to say that in your game that uh, there's an existing weapon that exists in um, Terranoth on page something, whatever it might be, you can write up a brand new um, description for it, but the existing stats can be reused without issue. And it's just simply something like this works as per dagger on page such and such of the Genesis Core rulebook. Yeah. That's all you need. I've, I've even seen supplements, Huli, that have been published where they don't do a write-up. They're like, consult the table for the weapons for this setting. Yep. It, new weapons. Mm-hmm. You know, may have additional details in their description, and they will only name and describe the new weapons. And then, like ninety percent of the table is like fantasy weapons that you would find in the Genesis Core book or Terranoth. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, again, you can reprint the stats without any issue because mm. the stats aren't the problem; it's the expanded text, which is what is copyrighted. So, correct. You know. Just say, these are the weapons that are are able to be used and just say what page number they're on. Or create a new (laughs) write-up. Yeah, or create a new write-up. If you want to take the lazy approach and it's just going to work like another weapon, put a little sidebar on your product. Just say, these weapons are usable in this setting and list them with their page number and what book they're from. It's simple. And, uh, you know, you're probably halving your work. Because, uh, you know, equipment is what a lot of players want to get their hands on. But in a a game system like Genesis, it's not necessary to have an expansive use of of weapons. It's cool because it can add to your setting, but it's not necessary. So uh, use that word count. If you've put yourself into a word count, use that word count to go further into your setting. That's one my suggestion is anyway. So holy, then then so so that, so that that's the solution then. Just guys, just just reskin, reskin, and reskin. Good. That was a good talk. That was a good <laughs> talk on weapons creation. It really was. It's a little bit more to it than that though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mean some people might actually want to create some new weaponry. Yeah, kind of, because we're kind of an educational podcast, are we? Sort of. <laughs> oh, God. That's a label I would never put on myself as education. <laughs> In fact, I think people get more stupid just by hearing me talk. Um, people get stupider just hearing me talk. Um, I like man, that. I, oh, I don't know. Maybe I'm just channeling what my wife says. I don't know. I don't know. What I'm trying to say is I love my wife. Uh, 
<laughs> All right, let, let's let's talk about crafting a weapon. <laughs> right now, uh, before my wife comes in here and stabs me with one. Um, right now, guys, we're, we are going to get into the simple step by step process of weapon creation. We now we are going to be paraphrasing and and sort of reframing the rules in the book and the pages that we've called out to you. But we are also going to be kind of adding in maybe one or two of our own special steps. Yep. And more importantly, combinations and tips and tricks that we have found to be highly valuable in when creating a weapon. And like we do, you, you don't have to follow these steps in order. And, 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 and likely you will go back and revisit a step after you've already completed it. But we have found as a general rule that following these steps in this order will, will make for an easier time for you in terms of wrapping everything up easily without missing things and really guiding your creation path in a specific way that's going to be beneficial for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So our first step, step one, describe and name the weapon. So, in other words, what does it look like? How is it used? What kind of training is needed to use it? What does it do? Um, <laughs> you know, we've found it best to start this way. Not only will your answers inform uh, almost all of the steps to come, but it will give you yet another chance to ask yourself if you need to be creating this weapon out of whole cloth or if you're better off just reskinning something else that's already out there. Yeah. So step two. Step two, once you've got that down, is what skill and or, or weapon type is it? So, so, so now that you know what kind of weapon it is, and you've got that narrative in your head, take a look at the skills in your game setting, all right, and, and determine what skill is going to be used with this weapon. Now, now, now typically... Um, you're going to have either melee or ranged uh, broken out into light and heavy, okay, depending mm-hmm. on the setting. Um, as is recommended, you, you should never have both melee and range broken out into light and heavy. It's one extra skill that, that you don't need, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so whether it's ranged or melee that you break out into light and heavy, a good rule of thumb is that mm-hmm. if it takes two hands to use it, it is heavy. Yep. If it does not take two hands to use it, it is light. Right. All right. Um, now, uh, this, this applies, of course, unless we're talking about a skill without the distinction. So if I'm playing in, for example, a science fiction setting with a ton of guns, uh, but I still have melee weaponry, it would still be melee, to, the same skill to use a dagger as it would be to use like a great spear or something like that. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, uh, but, you know, you're, but while, while in that same setting, your sniper rifle would be ranged heavy, while your holdout pistol would be ranged light. Okay, but right. conversely, again, in, in like a fantasy setting, you know, it's going to be the inverse. You're probably going to have one skill for range. So a throwing dart would be ranged. Your mm. heavy two-handed crossbow would also be ranged. <laughs> <laughs> but then when you get into melee, your claymore sword is going to be melee heavy, while your stiletto is going to be melee light. Okay? Right. Mm-hmm. Um. So that's that that's you know for melee and range that's kind of kind of your rule of thumb there you know but it could it could not be melee or ranged mm. does it enhance unarmed attacks well mm. guess what that's going to be the brawl skill yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is it something that t- under normal circumstances would be a weapon mounted to a vehicle mm-hmm. well that's probably going to be gunnery <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, could a normal person lift it and use it without difficulty? No? Well, it's probably going to be gunnery. And, it, and it's ranged. It's probably going to be gunnery. You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It, it, it honestly is not too terribly difficult of a process to figure out what skill is going to be associated with this particular weapon and what weapon type it is. Yep, yep. So where you're looking at is exactly under the combat skills. Simple as that. Yeah, that's it. Um, now, the skill you choose will also, of course, determine typically whether this is a ranged or a melee weapon, and that's important for price and damage, as we'll come to in a bit. Mm-hmm. But holy, mm. can a weapon be both ranged and melee? Well, of course it can. <laughs> a dagger <laughs> is a really good example. Um, you know, there's going to be some, uh, some cases where you are going to have that happening. So you have to define what the skills are used in either scenario. Um, you need to keep the item qualities. Uh, you need to keep the crit rating and the damage the same, regardless of how it is used. It's a little bit different um when and one of the things that that i found just through reading other supplements and other things that i've done is that um what you should really do is choose one when you've got the description choose one whether it be ranged or melee so whichever the one that is most commonly going to be used now if we use uh an example such as uh, and I'll, i'll go back to star wars here for a minute uh, if we look in at Rebels, and we've got Zeb. Now, Zeb has his, um, uh, I can't remember what it's called. You're going to be able to correct me that, on this, Chris. The uh, the blaster rifle that he can use, which can also turn into this melee weapon. So if it's more often used as a ranged weapon, put the description under the ranged weapon area of your uh, of your supplement, and then say, towards the end, you would then say something like, uh, this can also be used as a melee weapon. Put in a little bit of a description, and then say these are the stats that it will have when used as a ranged weapon. And then you don't have to worry about putting it in the ranged category of your table, yes. uh, because sometimes it can get you a little, or it can get the reader a little bit confused as in, okay, where am I looking for this? That it's in the one spot for the area that it's most commonly used. So uh, that's a bit of a tip as well. I'm a little hurt that you didn't remember the name of, of Zeb's bow rifle. Oh, I'm um, sorry. <laughs> um, and actually, Holy, I mean, the, the, the Lathan Honor Guard AB75 bow rifle uh, was traditionally used by the Lathan Honor Guard, you know, with, with blaster barrel capability and a, a integrated bayonet, but also the electromagnetic pulse generator tips. <laughs> I... <laughs> right. Someone, someone's given you the uh, the book on uh, on equipment and stuff like that, haven't they? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, moving along. <laughs> so, okay, we we have we we have our description, we have our name, we know what the weapon does, we know what skill, what type of weapon it is, and what skill is used to wield it. Yeah. What is step three? Yeah. So step three is encumbrance. Look, it might be strange to think of encumbrance as your next step, but the type of weapon this is and the skill it uses really determines encumbrance. Furthermore, step one to three that we're going through really do not impact the final step, pricing and rarity. So we're going to cover that next. So steps four to seven do impact pricing. Okay. So with brawl weapons, they should have an encumbrance of one. 
All right. Uh, so anything that you're using to enhance the brawl skill is going to be an encumbrance of one. So melee light and range light weapons should have an encumbrance of one. But sometimes they can also have an encumbrance of two. Maybe. Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes. Um, Melee heavy and ranged heavy weapons should have an encumbrance of three or four. And gunnery weapons can have very high encumbrance, as much as eight or even nine. Um, And we'll get into more stuff that probably gunnery weapons should have as well. (laughs) Um, But, uh, yes, this is intended to be too much for one person to wield, in other words. Uh, which is why such weapons are either mounted or require special attachments or feats to offset their weight and size. Mm-hmm. So step four. Well, step four is the big one, damage. Mm. Um, so, so now that you've, you've gotten the, the, the preliminary steps out of the way, which is Huli said, do not impact pricing and rarity. We're now yeah. moving into the, the, the real crunchy bits that really affect combative use and ultimately are going to impact pricing and rarity. Um, so you, you you know what the weapon is, you know what it does, you've named it, uh, you know what skills used for it, you know how heavy it is, what what its encumbrance value is. Step four is damage. Now, we have found it best to next move directly to damage um, in terms of, of, of the steps here, because the damage will and should inform the other steps to a large degree. In this step, you need to determine the damage you want to see from this weapon. All right. Now, we really do need to talk about this in terms of melee weapons versus ranged weapons, because the tips are a little different here. So with melee weaponry, and that does also include brawl weapons, as you know, Huli, those don't have a set, typically do not have a set damage value. It's always a plus X, okay? A plus Mm -hmm. one or a plus two or a plus three, all right? Yep. Um, Because brawn is added into the damage, all right? Yep. Um, Brawl or melee light weapons typically have a plus one to a plus three. Mm. All right. Melee heavy typically has a plus three to a plus five, depending on how nasty it is. All right. Mm -hmm. The thing is though, in this step, if you're making a melee weapon, unlike ranged, you then need to derive the average base damage which is really important for pricing later you just need to note it all right you need to note it for pricing later because it matters it matters okay Mm -hmm. that is going to be the plus of the weapon you know plus one plus two plus five if it's a big old melee heavy okay (laughs) plus three all right because the average melee fighter is going to have a brawn of three yeah that's just a fact okay so so that that is that that's really that's really how you want to consider it. So if you if you have if you have a plus two weapon, you need to know that its average base damage needs to be calculated as five. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, now if that seems low to you, <laughs> remember that increasing melee damage happens every time a character increases their brawn. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it is it is best to start low and err on the side of caution, especially if you're building something from whole cloth. Yeah. Now, with ranged weapons, and that includes gunnery-based weapons, <laughs> it's a bit easier. Um, ranged weapons have a set base damage. You do not add your agility to it. Okay. Yep. Um, ranged light weapons are typically going to have four to seven base damage. Ranged heavy, uh, typically eight to 12 base damage, with 12 being really hardcore heavy weaponry. 
gunnery are typically going to have 13 or higher base damage. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because they're the big honkers that are literally attached to vehicles. And guys, feel free to more liberally adjust these values for certain weapon types. Uh, you're going to have to for range. These are just these are just suggestions. They're not hard and fast rules. I mean, grenades are a prime example of this. You know, uh, a, a grenade, you know, is probably going to do a lot more than four to seven base damage. Okay. Yeah. E- e- even though it is a ranged light weapon. Hmm. Um. So, so grenades, prime example of of that. Um, so, so it, it, again, it's a it's a suggestion, not a completely hard and fast rule. Yeah, exactly. And okay. something that uh, that I've certainly heard people argue about when it comes to melee weapons is that they're reluctant to have those those higher values um, because they think that it's overpowered. Well, realistically. As you say, Chris, if you add three to whatever number that you've chosen, it still isn't comparable to what ranged weapons do. And I tell you what, if you've ever had or or been to like a medieval fair or something like that and seen the power that goes into some of those weapons when they come down, it does – could you imagine if they were like absolutely, you know, sharpened weapons? It's insane the amount of damage that they would do. And it's also devastating um, from the perspective of that it's, it's probably going to take your limb off, in which case that, you know, that, that might go down into uh, lower criticals, but we'll get to that in a tick. But, um, yeah, it's, it's certainly comparable. So don't shy away from, from melee weapons having that higher value. Uh, yeah, yeah, because yeah, th- th- this is something. This is a holdover from Star Wars, because yeah. in Star Wars you never saw a plus five melee weapon. That was like yeah. insane. Okay, yeah. and and that, that that that's setting determined because if melee weapons could outshine ranged weapons, nobody would use blasters. Okay, yeah. hmm. and consequently, I'm sorry. I'll take I'll take a I'll take a Smith and Wesson 38 over a broadsword any day. <laughs> um. In terms of damage that it will do to your, you know, uh, metaphorical wound threshold, uh, both will kill you dead. Okay, just, 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 just fine. Um, but it's one of those things that if you, oh man, I, I do want to stress to err on the side of the caution with melee because because the thing is also when you go to a medieval show and you see those guys swinging those swords around, yeah. those are strength four dudes. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Those they, they have brought in a four. They they, they they do okay, and and that's it's just it, it's it's the impact it's going to have. It just yeah. it just is, it mm. just is. Well, okay, dude. Speaking of of you know uh, uh, firing at a distance, mm. um, what is step five? <laughs> so step five is all to do with range. So that's how far away you can be for the weapon to be able to operate successfully. Uh, so, uh, for, for melee and, and brawl weapons, well, it's going to be pretty easy to work out that it's engaged. <laughs> um, <laughs> for ranged weapons, uh, you, you should typically have a max range of short or higher. Uh, most range light weapons should be short or medium. Uh, most range heavy weapons should be medium or long. Uh, although extreme range isn't out of the question. Uh, depending on the weapon, of course, for example, like uh, a sniper rifle or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, gunnery weapons should always be medium, long, 
or extreme. Yeah. Uh, some people have argued that um, you should be able to have ranged weapons that are strategic. Maybe, <laughs> but it's going to be very rare. Yeah, it would be it would be an extremely rare thing. And if if I if I had a um man, well, that we're getting down a rabbit hole here. I would almost create a new combat skill for it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it would be intellect based. Because <laughs> yeah, it's that over the horizon stuff. Yeah, it's ma- it's it's not it's not it's not your it's not your agility. It's math. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, now, one thing I will say, uh, even though that I, I did say with, with melee and brawl weapons that uh, it's engaged, don't forget that there are some weapons that do have their melee capability that goes out to short. And that will be things like... Where have you, see- where have you seen that? Well, I'm glad you asked. In the core rulebook, uh, in the Weird War setting, we have the Razor Whip, uh, it's on page 161. The Realms of Terranoth, uh, it has the Pike on page 94. Uh, Shadow of the Beanstalk doesn't have any, but Secrets of the Crucible does have the extending ability, which is on page 140. Um, now, there are some conditions that they have with these particular items. Now, obviously, I could only find these three, which means that it is very rare. Mm. Uh, but... It still can be done. So with a razor whip, it's got unwieldy three, which means that it's it's not particularly easy to use. So you're going to have to have an agility of three. The pike has prepare one, which isn't a massive deficit, um, but it does mean that you're going to have to waste a maneuver just to use it in the turn. The extending, however, does have an, an interesting sort of change to it which says that it retains the average difficulty to hit at short range. So uh, there seems to be this uh, unwritten rule that you have to have some sort of downside. So it is very rare. You're 100% right with that, Chris. Um, And, um, you know, it, it isn't sort of for every piece of equipment. There is no two ways about that. But when you've got uh, merely weapons like lances and things like that, which we haven't seen any official stats for, I would imagine that it will have the same sort of thing, that it will be a melee weapon, but it will be used up to short range. It's an interesting choice. Like, if, to put it into D&D terms, short range is out to about six squares. Exactly. About 30 feet. I mean, and look, we're not counting squares. These are abstract ranges, okay? Yeah, and short is, short is supposed to be a range distance. A sh- short is not even like, like, you can be at, like, engaged range with somebody without being even engaged with them. That's another difference, too. All right? Yeah. So, I, I, yeah. I, so, yeah, I, I, I don't know, man. I disagree. I disagree. I don't necessarily subscribe to it. I can see what they're getting at, but at the same time, I would not recommend it. Uh, that going out that far is just insane. Now, if you've got a weapon that is like that or that's how you see things, you might want to consider that it might have a special either a quality or it might have something in the, the descriptive text that says that it can't be used and engaged. So, because it's so unwieldy, but that's another, uh, that's something uh, else entirely. But that's another rabbit I, hole we're not going to get in. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I cer- certainly not a standard practice. And I would, 
if you're going to do something like that, guys, play test the, I mean. Sure, but the stats are FFG approved. So there is that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the other exception to this rabbit hole that I have seen successfully work before, um, although, as we said, typically, as Huli, as you said, ranged weapons should have a max range of short or higher. There is feasibility and actual some historical accuracy in creating a ranged weapon that works in engaged range. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The difference is, though, that there are set difficulties for using a ranged weapon at engaged range, and they're not easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and you would typically only do this on a weapon that was a ranged weapon that was tiny. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like a, um, a, a good example I could think of is like a Derringer. Okay. Yeah. Um, or or a, uh, a a James Bond uh, you know, dart watch that shoots a dart at somebody, right? You know, but but you're literally just three to five feet away from them. That is engaged range, okay? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but even then, you know, but we have set difficulties for that. I think I think that's 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 the difference. Yeah, I mean, uh, like anything, it, you can always break the rule with the descriptive text that you have. Uh, for yeah. each of the weapons. Um, and uh, you just got to remember to put that in there and make sure that uh, you you highlight that as a point because, uh, you know, most people will just play as per the rules, but there are going to be exceptions to the rule, but you need to explain yourself. And as we said at the top of the show, you need to play test it to make sure that it, it works. One question that I do have talking about range, how would you do a lance? How you, it's a melee weapon. Mm. Mm. I mean, what, what, what does it need to be different? No, I don't think it does. But I know that that will be a question that somebody, no doubt, has asked uh, because it's fairly long. It's um, you know, it's certainly not thirty feet long, but uh, it's it's certainly a long thing. I, I think that it's still you keep it within engaged because a lance is not something that you should normally be using. Um, in hand-to-hand combat, unless you're in a mount, and they have special things for all of that as well. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would rely on the other qualities of a lance, which is, um, I would, I would probably give a lance a special quality, something to the effect of, um, you know, if you're, if you, if you are attacking an enemy first with this weapon in a round, like, mm-hmm. like maybe, maybe it gi- the, the weapon gives you a free rank in the uh, talent. Um, oh gosh, what's that talent uh, that? that uh, gives you a boost. It's rank that gives you a boost die when you're attacking first. Quick strike. Quick strike. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I could see it like, I could see it giving you a rank and quick strike. That would, that would be a really good narrative way to represent it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, that would, that would be a really good way to represent it, but narratively, but, but yeah, I just. Big rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> I should say. <laughs> right. So what about though? Step six. Ah, step six, critical mm. rating. Mm. Now that you've determined damage and range, you need to determine critical rating. How lethal do you want this weapon to be? Mm. All right. Now, the bottom line is you got a min and a max range of one to six on the crit rating, the number of advantages it will take to activate a, a crit. But we have to say ones and sixes are very, 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 very <laughs> rare and should be rare if they are used at all. Right. Okay. Rules is written. You can go one to six. Realistically, you should never use a one or a six. 
<laughs> there is virtually no reason. I mean, it should, I mean, good Lord, especially for uh, a purchasable item, something you're creating, no, no way, no how. The average crit rating is a three. Okay, this should be your starting point. You, you want to make it a very deadly, very dangerous weapon? You can drop it down to a crit rating of two. All right? Mm-hmm. Crit ratings of four mean that a lasting injury is far less likely, and a crit rating of five means it will almost never happen. Okay, without a triumph, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are oftentimes things you want in a weapon. A badass weapon is not something that necessarily has to create a lasting injury. So, so yeah, that, that, that's, you know, but, but once again, when it comes to crit ratings, three is your starting point. You want it to be really nasty, make it a two. You want it to be, you know, I mean, if it's not likely to puncture a lung or uh, lop off an arm or something like that, then, yeah, make it a four or a five. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that there's some arguments to say don't ever go to two because there are talents that can turn that into one on one. And you can only ever do one critical in a round. doesn't matter how many triumphs and, and advantages that you roll. But just remember that for every additional crit uh, that you reach with advantages or triumphs, it's adding 10. So if you've got something with a critical rating of two and it has an item quality, like Vicious that adds 10 or more, uh, depending on its rating, you can kill someone outright. Simple as that. And it's realistically the only way you can die, die in uh, uh, in this game. So, um, so okay, rabbit hole for crit rating. Right. Let's do it. Let's talk, let's talk about using Genesis, which I have been asked about, to yep. recreate the disruptor weaponry from Star Wars. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Now, <laughs> here's the deal with disruptor weaponry. All right. right. So, so Huli, you're, you're familiar with disruptor weaponry from Star Wars, yes? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, okay. So they, they, have a, they have a long and storied history. And if you go into the Star Wars rule books where, where narrative dice you know, really, really started, there is uh, the disruptor rifle and the disruptor pistol. And the, the key thing is, here is this. The damage is... The damage on disruptor weapons is is ridiculously like like a disruptor pistol has a base damage of ten. So does it, so does a disruptor rifle? Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the disruptor pistol has pistol has vicious four, meaning it adds plus forty to any crit. The disruptor mm-hmm. rifle has vicious five. Okay. Mm-hmm. But in mm-hmm. the special rules text, it specifically says that whenever a victim is hit by a disruptor, any critical hit will result in a crippled effect unless the roll on the crit table is it would 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 result in an even more grievous injury mm-hmm. so 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 to put that in in genesis terms in terms of looking at the genesis crit table yeah. um crippled is 96 all right and i believe it was very similar in star wars yeah that means that this thing even with vicious four or vicious five depending is going to roll a minimum of a 96 minimum okay to 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 cripple one of the target limbs for like until it is until it is healed okay yeah. mm-hmm. and because of the vicious quality as well and and the sheer amount of damage they do disruptors were like they they were they were death sentences it was it was absolutely insane the way Star Wars managed to balance them, and, and they still, frankly, were, were not balanced and caused a lot, of, and still do cause a lot of problems on the game table, okay? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The reason Star Wars was able to balance them is because they had fairly high rarities, but more importantly, 
ridiculous costs in the thousands, all right? Mm-hmm. But more importantly, they had a thing that we will come to talk about when we talk about price and rarity, and that is the restricted quality, okay? that be, Because Star Wars is more than just a role-playing game set of rules, it's also a setting. They can do things like, it's like saying, oh yeah, in this setting, this weapon will get you 20 years in prison by having it on your person, okay? Yeah. That alone is a balancing feature, okay? Yeah. So if you're wanting to create something like this from a critical standpoint for Genesis and, and have a weapon that has that level of capacity, it needs to be something that has a role-playing consequence so severe that most characters are going to have to really think twice about ever holding one of these things. Yeah. All right. That's yeah. my point. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, disruptors bad. Um, yeah, I've only ever used one once um, in a campaign that I've run, and it was instantaneous. Uh, the character's arm was just incinerated. So uh, yeah, gone. gone. <laughs> so uh, yeah, when you start throwing that at your players, yeah, they start running away really quickly. Um, but uh, if they get their hands on one. <laughs> Make sure that you're putting everything after them for it. <laughs> yep. Better anyway. All right. And just on that point, though, um, with the restricted quality, uh, although it's not really quality, it's more of a it's a state of mind. Um, <laughs> but the restricted quality is in Shadow of the Beanstalk. Uh, yep. Page 85, there's a um, sidebar in relation to that. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, there's no massive rules for it, uh, for those who don't have a copy of Shadow of the Beanstalk, uh, but basically to be able to find it instead of using your negotiation, which you normally would to, uh, to purchase items or to find items, um, that are available, uh, you use your streetwise, uh, because, uh, obviously it's restricted unless of course you have some sort of rule in place with regards to people being able to own restricted items. And there is a talent that is also in Shadow of the Beanstalk for exactly that yeah. purpose. Yep. But I digress. Talking about special things, step seven is uh, where we're going to talk about special rules and item qualities. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, this is an optional step, first and foremost. Um, It is totally okay for a weapon to have any item qualities or special rules. Uh, Or not have them. Or not have them, even. Um, Or uh, in terms of the core rulebook, the item qualities on page 86 uh, to 89 are really where you need to start to look at. Now, this is the point in time where you go back to your earlier steps to not only inform the weapon's special qualities, but maybe even adjust your numbers from steps four to six to make things more holistic. And that really is the key thing. Item qualities and special rules should enforce a holistic view of your weapon once you defined back in step one. Now, we've got a few serious learned lessons, paraphrases of book wisdom, and uh, you know a few tips and tricks for you all when we start talking about special rules and item qualities. So our first one is beneficial item qualities should be few in number. Now remember that most beneficial item qualities require advantages to activate. 
So it's going to be highly unlikely that multiple uh, are going to be activated on a single attack. So if you've got two, for example, you're going to need four advantages. Um, so, you know, four advantages may be a critical hit instead, um, something which the players often choose to do, unless it's a sort of special item quality that they really need in that specific circumstance. And it's probably the reason why they're using that weapon in the first place. Um, having more than one beneficial quality should be the case when, uh, only when you want the weapon to give the player options for spending advantage. And and consequently, you don't want to inundate your players with too many options either. Um, you know, you, the last thing you want to do is have a player sitting there for two or three minutes working out how they're going to spend that advantage. That's um, um, just going to slow down play. It's going to annoy other players. Um, and yes, there are items which are out there which do have multiple qualities on them. Um, but they're normally specifically designed for a purpose. Um, grenades is one. Uh, it's got quite a few qualities, but uh, a lot of them in those sort of circumstances are things that are just going to be the standard. They don't need advantages to to activate. They talk more about the item quality, or the item's design, I think is what I'm saying there. Um, but, uh, yeah, you, you definitely don't want to win and don't your players with those too many options. Um, and, uh, you know, also if you, if you want to give them abilities such as things similar to talents, remembering that you don't necessarily want to give them talents, you want to give them things that look like talents, um, you know, they've typically got enough to worry about. So, uh, and so do you, because sometimes some of these weapons are going to fall into you, the hands of your NPCs as well. And you'll have to be remembering all of these little different things as well. The next piece of wisdom we can give you when it comes to special items and qualities, or excuse me, special qual- special rules and item qualities, negative item qualities, uh, which bless you, Genesis, you include quite a few, mm. can help balance a weapon out. Okay. Yeah. Don't forget they're there, whether it's cumbersome, prepare, inaccurate, inferior, slow firing, unwieldy. These qualities can really make a, an overpowered weapon much more balanced. Hmm. The advice we would give you, though, is to try and keep this to a single negative quality if you add any of them at all. Hmm. If you're getting into multiple negative item qualities, I've usually found that been because somebody's trying to replicate. Like, like I've seen players get so into this that they are, or, or, or writers get so into this that they try hmm. to like turn it like like what what let me start up a chair, okay. <laughs> Well, it's going to be inaccurate, and it's going to be unwieldy, and it's going to be, or it's going to be cumbersome, um, you know, uh, or inferior. I'm like, dude, no, it's just an improvised weapon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't need a stab. So, if you're going to use negative item qualities, um, try to keep it to one. But remember that it can really help balance out a weapon. Um, the best example of this that I've used when I've created some stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, actually it, it, it mattered for the, uh, the sniper rifle I created just for the one shot I ran for me and Steve, right. um, uh, the, it, the, the, the prepare or the slow firing negative qualities are phenomenal balancing for high damage weaponry. Yep. Um, 
the, the sniper rifle with with prepare is a classic example where sorry you got to spend a maneuver to rack the round in you know what i mean mm-hmm. yep um it, it's a great way to help balance out a high damage weapon mm-hmm. and don't forget also that some of these negative item qualities do have ratings Mm-hmm. So it can be like prepare two, which means yeah. that you need to spend two maneuvers to be able to do it. Yep. Slow firing three. It um, you yeah. know, it, it that's a that's a. Oh, I've just pulled that number out of my head, but <laughs> but that can really slow down the use of that particular weapon. Um, things like you're unwieldy and uh, you're cumbersome. I love those qualities, um, and I wish they'd do more. Uh, in that sort of nature. But uh, it, it's great for things which are, you want players to be able to use them as a heavy weapon, but you want to show their size more so than just a higher uh, a higher encumbrance. You mm-hmm. want them to be that the only way that you're going to be able to use them is if you are a strong person, because this thing is a massive pole arm that's made purely of metal. Mm-hmm. Mm. All right. So our next tip, um, don't double up on similar qualities. For example, um, pierce and breach are exactly the same thing, just <laughs> in a different scale. Uh, <laughs> look, um, pierce is like, well, breach is just pierce 10, ultimately. Yeah. Um, well, breach one. Uh, you know, pierce basically maxes out. Uh, although it, technically speaking, it doesn't. Um, but uh, you know, uh, breach is for your going through armor of a of a of a tank or of a vehicle. Um, the the pierce is normally resigned into that sort of one to four category, and even a pierce four is hugely impressive. Yeah, it's going to ignore soak, remembering that most people are only going to have a soak of two, maybe three depending on how you go. Uh, And so you're just ignoring that. Even with armor, you're going to ignore it. But outside of that example, which is a good one for just similar qualities, you want to avoid, I mean, those are identical qualities. You want to avoid similar qualities. I mean, look, I mean, I know, I know concussive and disorient have different effects, but you should not have them together on a weapon. Okay. I, (laughs) I know that auto fire and blast are very different, but you should not have them together on a weapon. Okay, you know, they they both accomplish the same thing of damaging beyond one target. Okay, don't double up on similar qualities. Yeah. The next tip somewhat related to this is that you got to realize some things just do not make sense in some circumstances. Yeah. Do the rules stop you from putting accurate and inaccurate on the same weapon? No, they don't. But why would you do that? Yeah. All right. (laughs) Do the rules stop you from adding auto fire to a melee weapon? I just looked and no, they don't. But <laughs> why would you do that? <laughs> mm. <laughs> yes, why would you do that? Uh, it just it just doesn't make sense. You're gonna you need you need to use your your, your common judgment here. Don't double up and remember that some things just don't make sense. Yep. Uh, one a really good example uh, of something that you shouldn't do also talking about autofire, is linked, even though some do exist in Star Wars, I think. That's just nasty. <laughs> Why would you do that? Because yeah. it's kind of doing the same thing. Um, it is, yeah. It's just, it's just, yeah. 
yeah. a different, it's a different mechanic, but yeah. it's pretty much the same sort of thing. So, uh, you know, really take a look at that. Uh, our next point, use Pierce wisely. Now, I mentioned it before. Pierce is your magic tool to give a weapon with a low damage a higher effective output of damage. So if um, you know not satisfied with the average damage of a four for your newly created stiletto with its paltry plus one, uh, a rank or two of Pierce suddenly makes it the deadly weapon its narrative suggests. You know, it's uh, it's that simple. So, you know, do you have a newly created phase pistol whose narrative talks about phasing its energy blasts past or through solid matter, but the six damage it has doesn't reflect that properly? Well, that can be narratively represented by a couple of ranks in Pierce. But look, be wary and avoid the temptation to add Pierce to weapons that already have a high damage output. Now, it might make narrative sense that your newly created great cleaver that is intended to rend flesh from bone should have pierce, but then you look at its plus four and average damage of seven and realize that adding pierce on top of that is probably just a little bit too much. Um, Probably, probably just a little too much. (laughs) It's probably a bit much. So, you know, it is a balancing act. And uh, as we said, you know, you can put all of these things on, sure. And no doubt if it's got things like that, uh, your your gamers are just going to flock to it very, very quickly. Um, yeah, so yeah. You, you don't want to have the must-have weapons. It's kind of like in the same sort of vein as we've talked about in the past about talents. You don't want to have must-have talents because must-have talents, everybody's going to have it and it's going to end up boring and it's probably going to break. If it's a must-have anything, it usually means it's broken. (laughs) Yes. So, uh, you know, balance that out. (laughs) It's as simple as that. All right. Now, the next tip is is our last one, and we spent a long time talking about about item qualities and and special rules, but this is an important one for me. Hmm. This is one that is mine, and it means a lot to me, and I want you to listen to it because it's important. Mm-hmm. And I, I have had so many hard learnings that have really jacked up my play tests as I've been working on a couple different settings, even before yeah. the foundry came out. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but m- most notably has caused a whole ton of rework and re-refinement with my Aegis setting, which is, you know, sci-fi futurism, you know, yeah. superheroes in space. Understand the kaboom quotient. <laughs> All right. That is the tip. Because oh, what do I mean? What do I mean by this? There is a whole lot of misunderstanding at the table around blast, disorient, knockdown, and concussive from a narrative sense. In a narrative sense, they are, in many respects, brothers from another mother. They live in the same house, and that is the house of the narrative kaboom effect. All right? It is the effect of jogging somebody so freaking hard that they go kaboom. Okay? It's it's a kaboom of some kind. As a as it as it is as a GM and as a designer, you have to instinctively understand the difference between these, when to use them, and realize that rarely, if ever, should any of these four abilities be combined together in the same weaponry. Hmm. Yes, there are a couple of examples where that actually does happen in the book, but that is the exception that should not inform your weapon creation design. Hmm. So, Huli, I want to talk about these in order to talk hmm. about how powerful they are. Yeah, absolutely. All right. 
Talk to me about Knockdown. So good old Knockdown, the thing that everybody has if they're using any sort of brawling attack. Uh, so, uh, but um, basically Knockdown, it knocks your single target prone, uh, and that can be from like a blast effect um, or even from a clever melee move with, um, you know, due to the, the weapons uh, construction, the, the thing that you're using. Um, uh, and it, as I said, it's great because everybody who does an unarmed attack automatically gets that as uh, one of the, uh, the, the item qualities, effectively, from your fists. So what it's effectively doing is it's forcing your foe onto the ground so that they have to then, in the following round or in their following turn, that they have to spend a manoeuvre to get up. I mean, obviously, they can crawl if they want at half speed, but most of the time, they're going to want to get up off the ground. So it's, you're forcing them to spend that maneuver. So it's a great ability as far as that goes and gives you a little bit of control, for want of a better term, um, on the battlefield because you're slowing them down because they have to do something else. Now, another thing that is there is, and this is very unusual, although it's not unheard of, that knockdown can be used for ranged weapons. Now, it's valid if you want to represent like a blast type effect, uh, air quote, but um, don't particularly want to have the blast do additional damage. You just want the, uh, the kinetic energy of this particular weapon to knock them down. Uh, so, um, you know, in other words, knocking them off their feet. Now, it's a, it is also a really great option for larger, unusual melee weapons. Uh, for things like whips and chains, uh, it's, uh, it's an absolutely fantastic option, um, and it makes total sense. But also for big melee weapons uh, that don't so much as, um, you know, trip a foe, but uh, it knocks it down with an unbelievable amount of kinetic force. Uh, you know, things like great clubs, uh, etc., are really good examples of that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and if you're doing martial arts or brawling, it makes sense. You can trip your foe. I mean, that's really what knockdown comes down to, right? But, but you know, knockdown is, is, knockdown is the baby brother in this family when it comes to the boom, all right? It's, it's, I mean, you're, you, you're, you're, you're popping somebody so hard or so, like, you're, you're, you're knocking them off their feet, all right? Yeah. So that's the baby. All right. The second youngest child uh, in this family is disorient. And this is is the classic ringing of the target's bell. You know, I rung his bell, dazing them with a hit so powerful that it disorients them. Okay, which is an actual condition that obviously imposes a setback die on the checks they make for however many rounds they are disoriented. This is a, as you said, it's available for natural brawl attacks. And consequently, it is a fantastic quality to give to brawl weapons. Also, melee weapons that bludgeon their targets. All right. Mm -hmm. Um, Really, really great quality. And it's kind of it's kind of a step up in the Kaboom family. (laughs) <laughs> but what about the next oldest brother? Well, the next oldest brother is Blast. Now, this is about a spread of, of damage, uh, damage with an area of effect, targeting one foe with the potential to damage everyone else around them, you know, uh, grenades and explosives, you know. <laughs> That's really what it is, yep. That's all of them. <laughs> And, and and then we come to disorient and blasts and 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 knockdowns. Big, smelly, mentally unbalanced older brother, concussive. 
Oh, God, yes. <laughs> Concussive is a single target effect that is the bell ringer of bell ringers. Mm-hmm. It is one of the nastiest, most potentially overpowering things you can give a weapon. Because mm-hmm. it staggers a target if you pull it off. And Huli, what does staggered do as a condition? Yeah, staggered means that basically you can't take actions. <laughs> <laughs> this should be reserved for very, very, very rare weapons that are made of very, very unusual things or are powered by very, very unusual things. Mm. The Kaboom family operates a narrative space of bell ringing. Basically, as, 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 I've, as I've said a couple times, and you've got to understand the Kaboom quotient here. You have to understand if you're if your narrative for this weapon that you defined all the way back in step one says that it, it, that I want this to have the ability to ring that target's bell. OK, you need to understand what that means. If it's if it's a minor bell ringing, it's going to knock them on their butt. OK, that's knockdown. If it's going to ring their bell in the classical sense, that's disorient. OK, if it's going to boom and and really deal damage to multiple targets in that sense it is blast and concussive is the bell ringer of bell ringers all right understand the difference because you don't want to misapply because it fits the narrative understand that that lower versions of the of the kaboom family can often satisfy your narrative at a much less uh of a power increase a potentially overpowering aspect to the weapon does that make yep. sense Uli? absolutely it does all right man well step eight our last step for everything <laughs> yes. we've talked about so far cost and rarity yeah now in this final step you're going to add the ultimate balance to the created weapon by adding its cost and its rarity now when we talk about cost the good news is that you've already done most well almost all of the hard work uh, simply turn to page 199 of the core rulebook and glue your eyes to table 3.1-2, Weapon Cost Calculations. Every choice you've made in weapon design up until this point will be referenced, or at least alluded to, on this table. Now, you're going to start with a cost of zero and just start adding cost based on damage. Yep, that's Average damage for melee weapons, critical rating, range, and the various item qualities you've given it. Now, we're not going to go through each option as pretty much you guys can read, so we're not going to worry about that too much. Uh, But one key call out on the table, um, and, you know, don't forget it, is the last line item on it. Once you've calculated cost, if it's a melee or brawl weapon, reduce the total cost by 50%. And even then, this is just a base. You've got to use your judgment and potentially alter costs further to have it simply make sense. So, for example, if you built a knife using this method, uh, the average damage is four and um, with its plus one and a critical rating of three. Now, it would cost 125 not the 25 that it actually costs and should cost. <laughs> <laughs> so this is an example where you really do need to apply your judgment. You know, yeah. it's like, not wh- wh- why, why does a knife only cost 25 when if you look at this table, it should cost 125 mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. 
they're mass produced because <laughs> because 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 Stone Age peoples can make them because <laughs> because it's a ubiquitous knife, right? That right. has to go into your cost, and as we'll talk about next, also your rarity. Yeah. So let's talk about rarity. This is this is the tough stuff here because the book actually Huli, gives you very little guidance on assigning rarity to an item in these pages. Um, the literal yeah. text basically says it's up to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, however, guys, as, as a short primer on rarity, be sure to check out pages 82 and 83 of the Core Rule book, where rarity is detailed quite heavily, um, yep. specifically table um, uh, uh, 1.5-1, rarity, uh, gives you some great examples of common items and their rarity. And to give you some examples, a knife, the aforementioned knife, mm-hmm. would be a rarity of two, all right? Yep. A semi-automatic pistol (laughs) would be a rarity of five. But what's important to note here is that setting matters because a black powder pistol in a medieval or fantasy setting would be much rarer than a semi-automatic pistol in a modern or sci-fi setting, probably pushing the pistol up to what rarity seven, maybe, or even more, depending Mm -hmm. on how rare you wanted to make, you know, that's really unusual, right? Right. Also, pages 82 through 83, where they talk about rarity, table uh, 1.5-2 rarity modifiers also tells you when you should adjust rarity. But keep in mind that those adjustments typically do not apply to the base rarity of the item if you're creating it. Those adjustments typically have to do with geographical geographical locationing um, and other environmental and circumstantial factors that are going to affect rarity. You know, like, you know, getting... You know, a swimming pool in the desert is the <laughs> the the example. You know, if I'm if I'm in the big city, yeah, I'll go find a swimming pool dealer. That's going to be a rarity of four. But if I'm in the desert, it's going to be a rarity of ten. Right. <laughs> the the bottom line, though, it is it is up to the GM to assign base rarity, and a lot of that is going to be to depend on the setting and on the time period of what you're creating. So yeah, creating weapons can sometimes be a little bit of guesswork, uh, but hopefully all of this has really kind of helped you to get a a bit of a grasp. Um, And I did actually find a little bit of a tool, um, which uh, we'll put a link in the uh, the show notes, uh, that um, one of the uh, many people on the Genesis community created uh, that uh, does the work for you, uh, which is absolutely fantastic. And it does it for all weapons, whether they be brawl, melee, or ranged. It's an, it's an awesome browser-based cost creation calculator. It's great. Um, and that will obviously, as we've said, that will go up and down depending on what uh, the the story behind the weapon is uh, and, um, you know, how deadly it is. Uh, because, you know, the, the more deadly things are, the more expensive they're going to be or the harder to find that they are. So, uh, you know, take that in consideration as well. Um, so Chris, I reckon we should do an example. What do you think? I think that's a phenomenal idea. Excellent. Um, as, as we hosts love to do, uh, we're going to put our money where our mouths are. We're going to create some brand new weaponry right here on the show, Mm. following the steps that we've outlined above. And we're going to bring something new, hopefully for your tables. Mm. It goes without saying though, Huli. Yes. That what we are creating here tonight still hinges on being fully and completely and concretely and properly play tested. 
Agreed. Because <laughs> what we're about to create may break the game completely. Yeah. So, or it could all... be a lot of fun. We don't know. We don't know. Yeah. We're, we're going to follow these rules and we're going to come up with some goodness to it. And uh, it should work. But we'll see. We'll see. So let's start with you, Chris. What have you got? All right. Many years ago, mm-hmm. I ran some one-shots for Star Wars um, that was inspired by a, a long-running campaign, a brilliantly ideated campaign by by my good friend GM Brev, mm. um, Inglorious Rebels. Do you remember <laughs> talk about this? I do. I do. <laughs> All right. Um, inspired by by the the, the movie Inglorious Bastards. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the idea is inglorious bastards in star Wars. So literally they're, they're, they're in the, they're, in, they're behind the lines, killing imps. All right. Uh, that's what they did. So for, for those one shots, I created all these pregens that mirrored the characters from inglorious bastards. Um, and that included a force sensitive stealth assassin named Shoshana. Mm. All right. Mm-hmm. Now, at the time, I had created a vibro garrot for her, um, which went through a few play tests by fire, and ultimately, I found that I just never got it right. It was either useless or way too overpowered. So I want to take another stab at it. This is from from my learnings. This is my attempt to bring the garrot into Genesis using <laughs> these rules. All right. Mm-hmm. So let's walk through the steps. Remind me, what's my first step? All right, so step one is describe and name the weapon. Well, there we go. At its simplest form, the garrot is a short, thin, and very strong length of wire or rope with handholds at each end. Its purpose is the nefarious art of assassination, strangling an unaware target until they are incapacitated or killed. Popular due to its ease of concealment, many a victim has fallen to its deadly simplicity. My goal here is not to make a deadly weapon that has tons of damage output. I want it to use item qualities to achieve its goal as it slowly kills you. All right? Because that's what the garrot is. It takes a while to strangle somebody to death. Mm-hmm. All right? Yeah. So, step two. What skill or weapon type is it? Okay, so talk to me about this. I think I made the right choice here. You could make the case for melee. You mm-hmm. could. Mm-hmm. But when you consider the narrative, uh, the, the the idea of wrestling the target you're garroting and the pure uh, you know, uh, martial art, art artistry that is needed to do this and the, the brawn needed to do it successfully, I think brawl is much more fitting. Mm. That's a tough call. Um, I think that Brawl is most accurate, um, but I think that if uh, if a listener was doing it, I, I think you could probably justify melee. Um, I think so. It, I think so. You know, you could even go out on a limb and say that you could use one or the other. Ooh, that would be that would be intriguing. That mm. would be that would be very intriguing. Hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep it at Brawl for the time being, and that's, uh, that's also going to impact my damage output. So maybe through playtesting, I might determine that I want to bo- boost the damage by a point, in which case I could turn it to a melee weapon, still keep it light, and accomplish that. But I'll yeah. keep it Brawl for the time being. The only problem that I can see that you'd have with that is that by making it a Brawl weapon, it automatically gets knocked down. Now, if that's what you're yep. wanting to do, that's fine. Yes. So in, in that case, Brawl is probably your best choice, yes. 
So step three, encumbrance. How heavy is it, Chris? <laughs> oh, that's easy. This is <laughs> by narrative in step one, one of the smallest, most concealable weapons around, right? Right. Encumbrance one. Easy peasy. Yep, easy. Right. Step four is damage. Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> um, this is tough. Now, like I said, from the narrative I put into this earlier, like I said, th- this is this should be relatively low damage on a single hit. A single attack from a garot is not going to kill someone. It shouldn't. Okay? Mm-hmm. It's about repeated attacks. The, the goal is to maintain and repeat an attack each round until the target is toast. You know, narratively, I've got this length of wire wrapped around their neck, and I'm yanking until they're dead. Okay? Mm-hmm. But what that means mechanically is every round, I'm going to be I'm, I'm going to be engaging with them and making another attack. All right? And mm-hmm. we've all watched James Bond. Okay? <laughs> what happens when somebody gets garroted, especially Bond? You see those failing, th- those attacks occasionally failing round to round, right? Yep. Yep. You know, your, your target is going to slam into you with their elbows. They're going to wrench their fingers beneath the garrot. They're going to, you know, uh, uh, you know, break away from you for an instant. And the next round, you're going to have to uh, that you see them engage, attack again, and wrap the wire around again, right? <laughs> that that's the mechanics. It doesn't change the narrative. Yeah. Okay. So with that in mind, I'm going to, again, assuming a three brawn, have an mm-hmm. average damage of four. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm going for. That means it's going to take a few rounds to kill somebody with this. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's going to be the trade-off for its concealability. Right. So ultimately, if I want that average damage of four, assuming the three brawn, that's going to be plus one damage, which is obviously fitting for a brawl weapon anyway. Mm. And again, if I play test this out and I find that it's not enough and I want to bump it to five damage by giving it a plus two, I could make this a melee weapon. True. Right? Mm. And also, I think the real usability in this weapon is going to be in the special qualities it has, but we'll come to that. So da- damage plus one. Done. So our step five, which is range. Not hard here, really, is it? <laughs> Engaged. Indeed. <laughs> Number one, make it so. Engaged. <laughs> All right, so step six is its critical rating. Okay. (laughs) Now we get weird. Huli, narratively speaking, the garrot is a lethal weapon, right? Right. But is it a weapon that actually inflicts intensive crits? Not really, no. Unless it's a monofilament um, wire. (laughs) I'm just going for a garrot. I could create a monofilament version, and it would cost a heck of a lot more. I don't want that. I want two wooden handles and a piano wire. That's what I want. Right, makes sense. But it really doesn't. And this was kind of a hard pill to swallow as I was pulling, as I was designing this out. It's not like a blade or a bullet. It's not going to inflict lasting damage quickly. That, that's not the Garot style. It's a wire around your neck. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually going to go for a crit of five on this. Interesting. And that's totally understandable, actually, because, yeah, it's the weapon is designed to basically choke someone to death um, through just through suffocation. Yeah. It's, it's not going to cripple a limb. It's not going to, no. you know, it's just not going to do it. It's still going to potentially crit like you could, as I just said, that, that you could suddenly, you know, crack their windpipe, which would be an interesting effect. So crit five. Most of the time it's not going to happen, but it can. So, yeah, cool. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Step seven, special rules and item qualities. Now, this is what you've said is basically where you were coming from. This is where you wanted most of where the the weapon is based around. So, Yes. This is the fun stuff. 
Um, item qualities, item qualities. This is where the weapon's going to shine. I'm going to add in two item qualities and one special rule, which I'll explain. I'm also going to start by saying the item quality you're not going to see in the stat block here is knockdown because I don't have to add knockdown because it's a brawl weapon. All right. Taking my target to the ground, getting them prone while I'm choking them is actually very narrative for a garrot. Okay. But because this is a brawl based weapon, I don't need to add it. It's automatically added. Consequently, I don't need to increase my cost when it is added in this way. Correct. Okay. The two item qualities and the special rule that I will be adding are going to potentially increase the cost. Okay. Mm. So let's talk about item qualities. The first one, and it's a classic, ensnare. Ensnare Mm. one. All right. This is the classic use of a garage is to lock down your foe, to immobilize them in addition to you know, choking them to death. Um, <laughs> and, and honestly, in hair, in snare handles this perfectly. You know, when, if, if, if your opponent has you garroted and they decide to pop those two advantage, you have no maneuvers for a round. You are not going anywhere. Okay. Mm. I went with one rank in it because I think one round of inability to perform maneuvers is, is good enough because honestly, you know, immobilization, you know, immobilization actually prevents the drawing of weapons. Yes. Because it's a maneuver. Because it's a maneuver. All right. The the narrative of struggling with your attacker while slowly having to draw your weapon out to deal with them makes sense. Mm. And and to me, that represents being ensnared and not ensnared, you know, round by round as the attacker and the target struggle. You know, you're ensnared one round when they pop a couple advantage to do it. The next round, they hit with their attack again, but they can't kick off and snare again. Well, Mm. you can now get your maneuver and now you can take your weapon out and try and shoot them. But then the next round, they ensnare you again, right? Again, that round-by-round round struggle that's going to be so interesting with this particular weapon. Mm. The next item quality I've given it is Disorient 2, because this is another classic trope of the garrot. It is literally squeezing off your oxygen flow, mm. leaving your head swimming. And that effect is going to persist for a good bit, even if the garrot is removed, as you like cough and gasp and catch your breath, which mm. we see in films all the time, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yep. And 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 to me, that is represented by two ranks in Disorient. All right. Mm-hmm. I almost went for concussive one here, almost, mm-hmm. because I thought staggering was quite fitting for a garrot. Because <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yeah. The problem, though, is that if you kick it off, your target gets no actions. And that means no chance to overcome the ensnare quality. And I really wanted it to have ensnare as well. Yep. If you have, you know, we, we talk about the tips and tricks we had earlier where you need to make sensible choices. Ensnare and 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 concussive are are not brothers from another mother. They're not even similar. They have very different effects. But if you were to pull them both off at the same time, if you happened to roll for advantage. Okay, mm-hmm. that would be a ridiculously overpowered and game-breaking situation. You have denied your opponent all maneuvers, and you have denied your opponent all actions. Mm. It's just too much. Absolutely. Can I, can I make a suggestion that sure. you could have done, and this may change things, I don't know. You could have also used stun. Not stun damage, stun. Absolutely. Yeah, that's another way of looking at it, um, is that you could have done stun three or something like that that therefore you're bypassing soak. And realistically, when you're looking at a garrot, you're not sort of affecting body armor or whatever else. You've got them around the neck. So using stun basically avoids the soak problem. 
I really, really, really like that idea. Hmm. That's a fantastic cool. idea. That's an absolutely hmm. fantastic idea. Hmm. I, I mean, God, what would you, what would you, because like stun two mm-hmm. doesn't seem fitting enough for me, just dealing two no. strain that bypasses soak. No. But what would you go for? Stun, stun three? Three or four, I think. Ooh, that's that's gonna that's gonna get expensive really fast. Yeah, look, if that is the case, I, I think that probably stun three is gonna be your best bet. Um, now, as much as disorient would be a fantastic option, uh, and it certainly suits the the weapon better, I think that the stun quality is going to suit the needs of what you're talking about uh, to choke somebody out, uh, affecting their strain much, much better. But yeah, no, no, no. I, I really like that idea. Okay, let's 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 do that. Let's Ooh. do that. Let, let's let's get rid of disorient two, and mm-hmm. let's replace it with stun three. That's a that's a fantastic idea. Mm. All right, well, let's work that out. So now we come to the special rules. I believe in the in its little narrative description box, the Garot deserves two special rules due to its narrative nature. They don't really have a corresponding item quality, and for the most part, they don't really have an in encounter use. Okay. Right. The first is any checks made to discover a Garot secreted on your character automatically suffer two setback dice. Yep. All right. The other one that I think is very fitting, additionally, due to the nature of this weapon, your GM may rule that it is ineffective against certain threats with unusual anatomies or compositions. Mm, yes. Depending on the setting, not, not all foes breathe and not all foes have necks. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just reminded of uh, Star Trek Six when Kirk hit that alien in the knees. <laughs> not everyone keeps their genitals in the same place <laughs> i love that scene so yeah no that i absolutely love that one additional thing that i might suggest is uh, having something that sort of it's it's harder to get out of because you're almost in a like a grapple and if you look at Terranoth, uh, Terranoth has its grapple talent, which I can't remember what tier it is now, but it requires two maneuvers to um, to get out of engage range of. Now I know we've got the ensnare. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was never a fan of that rule in Terranoth, quite frankly, because ex- because ensnare exists. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think anybody has ever done grapple properly. <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Because you basically needed a law degree to be able to understand it in Pathfinder. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, man. That's hilarious. Um, uh, the instant quality um, in the last line, it says an instant target may perform an action to attempt a hard athletics check on their turn to break free from the effect. Exactly. But they can still do it. Um, and hard, I think, is enough. So, uh, so yeah, yep. No, I'm I'm down with all of that. I think that sounds great. All right. Eight is cost and rarity. Well, now we get to go through the table on page one ninety nine. Mm. All right. Mm-hmm. So walk through it with me. I have an average damage of four. Yep. All right. That's going to cost me a hundred. Yep. I have an engage range. That's not even on the table because it costs me zero. Correct. Right. <laughs> Crit of five mm-hmm. costs me zero. Ensnare one costs mm-hmm. me two hundred. Yep. Stun three costs me one fifty. With my earlier choice of uh, of of disorient two, that would have cost me a hundred. 
But mm-hmm. stun three, which I think is fitting, cost me 150. Right. Now, there's also the special rules it has for the, the two setbacks on checks to discover it, but also ineffective against certain foes. Mm-hmm. What we have here is a case of positive and negative special rules. So from a costing perspective, I'm actually going to cancel them out. Mm. All right. That makes sense. That is a derived cost of 450 divided by two for a brawl weapon. So, holy, does that mean my garrot costs 225? <laughs> that's really expensive. So, no. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that, that's really expensive. So, like we said, guys, it, it gives you a base, but then you've got to get realistic with it. I mean, look, yeah, this should be more expensive. This is a very simple weapon. <laughs> it's wire and handles, okay? <laughs> but but the thing is, a proper garrote is more than an improvised weapon. It is a finely crafted instrument of death. It has to be light and supple be, yep. due to its uh, its ease of concealment, but it has to be able to do its job without breaking and while also giving the wielder a proper purchase to use it. Okay? Yeah. So it, it, it's not all the way down to the caliber of a knife, which is just a shiv that anyone can make. Okay? <laughs> it needs to be more expensive than a knife, but I'm sorry, uh, two, 225 is just too much. Especially yeah. when you consider that incredibly low uh, damage. I pretty much want to cut this in half, man. Mm. I don't have a problem with that. I think that, um, you know, anywhere between, you know, 100 to 150, somewhere along that would um, would be fine. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I'm going to go for 110, maybe 100, 110. It still makes it a relatively expensive item because it is a specialty item, which explains why not everyone and their uncle carries one compared to, say, <laughs> A knife, yeah. But I think I think that price is much more reasonable considering its construction and its damage. Absolutely. Right? And then lastly, I've got rarity. It, it's kind of a specialist weapon, so I think it's going to be more rare than a knife. You know, you're not going to walk into Walmart and get a garrote, okay? <laughs> <laughs> but but having said that, I think it's going to be likely much less restricted and easier to make and to ship than a pistol. Yeah. Um. So I'm going to set it at rarity four. Mm. So to put that into perspective, that's going to be to find it. That's going to be a difficulty of average. So that's going to be two purple die to yeah. be able to use. Um, in this case, it might be just due to the the nature of the weapon. Uh, it may be streetwise because it's uh, it's an illegal sort of thing. Um, but um, on the base of it, two difficulty. Yeah, I think that's pretty easy to to find. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and you'd have to play around with that as well. It depends on the setting, depends on the, the background. It may increase, or if you're sort of in more of an underworld type thing, um, it might be lower. But four sounds about right. Absolutely. Fantastic. That's really, really good. All right. So what crafty creation have you cobbled together, you conniving... I'm running out of alliterative C words. Yeah. I was going to use one, but it's really inappropriate. So I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, you know. Starting with a C, no. 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 How, about, how about, how about, how about, okay, uh, you, 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 you fantastical fabricator of, 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 of I'm, I'm, I'm leading into the F because I know what you got in your show notes. What have you made for us? <laughs> well, they are the fantastical. That's not part of it, but I, I had to throw it in there. They are called the Fistigons. Uh, or Fistigons. <laughs> um, so uh, recently the family and I have been on a bit of a Marvel binge. And everybody, I think, knows by now that I'm a huge uh, fan of superheroes. But uh, the latest show that we've been watching is Runaways, which uh, unfortunately 
only got three seasons, but uh, they were three seasons of goodness. So with that in mind, I've decided to choose a weapon that is a little bit different from the norm, and that is the Fisticons. They're basically worn as gloves. Uh, the Fisticons are the weapon of choice of Chase Stein, who is the son of famous inventor Victor Stein. Why is it the bad guys always have the name Victor? Because it probably sounds cooler. I thought Victor Stein was one half of uh, Firestorm. Or am I thinking of a different Professor Stein? That's a... No, I don't know now. I wonder, but that's his name in... Oh, well, look, comics share each other's names all over. Yeah, that's... That's that's fair enough. Plus, you're talking Marvel. Yes. I'm talking DC. What the hell am I talking about? Okay, continue. <laughs> now, in a rare moment of empathy, Victor, a clearly disturbed megalomaniac, uh, recognizes his son's talents and helps his one-time protege create the Fisticons. These act as both brawling weapons and ranged weapons, giving this boy genius enhanced powers in a group that um, is mostly made of um, people with Mm, superpowers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's the Tony Stark, I think, of, of this particular group. So the Fisticons grew in ability over time uh, in both the comics and TV series, but I think I'm going to look at the early iterations of the comics version, mainly because they're a little bit more interesting and they can obviously do a lot more fun stuff on the artistic scale as opposed to special effects and things like that. So, cool. step one. Uh, Describe and name the weapon. <laughs> Exactly. So these are bulky gloves, but they're obviously a little bit lightweight. So you know they're 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 going to it's going to have some sort of an impact uh, when we talk about encumbrance. Uh, now they have the ability to use pyrokinesis. Uh, the fisticons can shoot out flames and uh, construct various flames into various shapes or patterns. Uh, it's got electrokinesis, which uh, can release some type of electrical blasts, uh, projectile launches, uh, which can launch missile launches, and uh, concussive blasts, which can emit this concussive energy blast. They also don't appear to have um, any sort of power source that have to be charged up. They just are always charged. Uh, so, um, you know, that's something that we might want to consider there. Mm. Step Two, what skill weapon type is it? Now, because these weapons, they're both a brawling weapon as well as a ranged weapon. So it's going to vary. I I think that obviously the main stats that I'm going to display because they've got the most abilities attached to them are going to be displayed as ranged weapons uh, with the ability to use them as brawling weapons um, in the the text that we'll have of the description. That makes sense. And it's like, and, and like, I'm assuming when you get to this too, like when we talk about like cost and stuff like that, mm. I mean, you're going to, you're going you're gonna to have to cost this like a ranged weapon if it's got that functionality. Exactly. Too. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. So for our encumbrance, they are light weapons, which as we've mentioned previously is only really going to be a one, um, maybe two. I think they're on the upper end of the scale. So I'm going yeah. to make them encumbrance of two. Um, so that's at no additional cost. Um, The step four for damage. Now, the damage of the Fisticons is good, but it's not great. It's better in the hands of someone who knows what they're doing. So uh, I think the base of of five damage here is is suitable. But uh, as for the brawl damage, I think I'm going to give them a plus two because they, they appear supercharged 
and also that matches with the five. So I'm not really going outside the the realm of, yeah. of difficulties there. So yeah, totally. So that's only going to be a hundred uh, for the costs for a start. For the range, well, they can't really fire great distances, I don't think. So I'm going to keep it at medium range. Uh, and obviously, when it comes to brawling, it's going to be engaged range. So it's only going to cost me about 100 there, which is cool. I'm pretty happy with that so far. Then we've got the critical rating. Now, I Step six. Yeah, step six. I don't see uh, him doing a lot of permanent injuries to people and stuff like that. Yeah. <clears throat> so I'm thinking that uh, the critical rating, uh, look, I've said four. But I'd even be inclined to say five, just by oh. the fact that we don't. It doesn't do a lot of damage, um, permanent. It's more uh, that it's more about throwing people around and getting people out of the way and disabling them. That's what the these range weapons are for. So uh, look, I've said four. I'm going to stick with four. If you want to change your mind, please do so. Um, but um, yeah, so I reckon that's going to be about uh, fifty. For, uh, for that step. Um, yeah, on casting, yeah. Yep. So step seven. Now, this is where things are going to get a little bit more interesting. So step seven is special rules and item qualities. Because they're really quite versatile as far as using them as range weapons, I'm going to give them a few little mod cons. So um, the first one I'm going to give them is concussive one. Because <sighs> that's what I'm <laughs> – it's an expensive exercise, but that's what they're used for. Uh, is to you know disable the enemy so that they can run away. So yeah, it's they, they're not they're not damage dealers. You're, oh. you're 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 there hoping to roll that to advantage so you can deny them that action for a round, basically. Exactly, exactly. And I, I don't think that I want to make it too powerful, so I didn't want to go concussive two. So I just think for a thousand, I think concussive one is fine. Now there may be modifications that can be made with attachments and stuff like that, but we'll talk about that in a later episode, no doubt, where you could add on concussive to that. And then I also think that it has the stun quality as well. So it I'm just gonna give it a stun four. It's reasonable. So again, it's another meme of basically knocking them uh out. And um, so that um, yeah, they can they can escape to fight another day. Now, holy, yeah. now, holy though. Now, as I'm as I'm looking at table three dot two, excuse me, three dot one dash two weapon cost calculations mm-hmm. on page one ninety nine. Yep. It says for other positive qualities, which stun would definitely fall into, that yep. it's a hundred per rank. Mm. Right. Right. But then after that, in the little parentheses, it says or two hundred and fifty. Right. Okay. Now, initially, when we were doing our write ups. We thought that we thought that might have been like a max at two fifty, but I actually just got some clarification on that recently. Yep. Or two fifty applies to positive qualities that don't have a rank. Right. So in this case, it would be four hundred mm. for a stun four. Right. That's a little bit nasty. <laughs> it certainly increases the cost a little bit, but only one hundred and fifty. So I'm not I'm not too upset about that. So that gives me a total cost. Of 1,650 monetary units, but because of the type of, of item it is, I'm going to give it a rarity of 10. Ooh, it's unique. Yeah. It's unique. It's unique. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could probably get away with a nine, too. Yeah, possibly, because people could make it or um, people could duplicate it. Sure. But, um, yeah, for at the, certainly at the start, I'm going to give it a rarity of 10. 
because I have the only one that I that exists. Now, Holly, in your description, man, you talked about like fire and electricity and like grappling or entangling capabilities. None of that seems represented in this. Uh, do you do you have a future? plans perhaps look uh, i'm thinking that this particular item does you, you, you said uh, missiles you said missiles yes, I, did. Miss- I did the one thing that i think would possibly even make this and we'll discuss this later but i think in another episode that is i i think that the cost would probably be increased based on what i want to do so it's going to have a few more hard points so that attachments can be put onto these things, so that they can have <laughs> their missiles and they can have their doing strange things with electricity and stuff like that. But if it's a base weapon, I think that's fine as it is. But yeah, we'll talk about that definitely in this series of episodes when we start talking about attachments. Yeah, and, and, and guys, I'm sorry to string you along like that, but you guys notice if you've gone through this, we haven't mentioned hard points. Now, for Star Wars players who are very familiar with the narrative dice system, hard points are like a key part of, of equipment, right? Mm, right. And, and hard, hard points and attachments. But if you get into the Genesis rules and you get into just the raw rules around item creation, a weapon or armor or anything else as we'll get into – Hard points aren't mentioned. It's actually a supplemental optional rule set. Yeah. All right. Yep. So as Huli said, we are going to actually, as a part of this series, have a dedicated episode talking about nothing but hard points, but more importantly, attachments and creating attachments, yeah. balanced and beneficial attachments for your weapons and armor. Yeah. Um, and you, dude, I'm going to call an audible. Yeah. I think, I think as reasonable as we can, I think we should revisit the weapons we have crafted in that episode and i think we should hard point them and i think we should create attachments for them. yes that sounds cool <laughs> i love that idea that's fantastic let's do awesome <laughs> all right so what we've got are two brand new weapons we would love to get your guys opinion on um hmm. and holy if people want to you know maybe get a gander at some of the links that uh we we've talked about so far or maybe see these builds in action or maybe even review those tips that we went through in such excruciating detail can they do they have to listen to this podcast and take notes or is there an easier way they can get access to that information there is certainly an easier way and they can go to forgegenesis.com where we will have on our uh, we'll have a link to it you can download uh the pdf document uh and uh, take a look at that and it's uh you know i mean pretty happy with uh, the way that the rest of them have turned down some of them oh, i still haven't got to uh i know that people have been asking <laughs> Some of the uh, the vehicle ones, but um, yeah, it's uh, the stuff that we've got up there. It's great, so um, yeah, they'll be able to download this directly from there. So uh, so take a look at that, and we'll also be posting those uh, links up on Facebook as well. Indeed. Well, I can't wait to continue this series with our next episode, which will be all about armor. Uh, when we return yeah. to this series, mm. um, that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, but, but yeah, if you guys, as we proceed for that, as, as we move on to, to, to armor and equipment, if you have any specific things that you'd like us to tackle or even weapons, if you want us to go back and tackle the weapon, we'd love to hear it. Um, and uh, at the end of the show, we'll, we'll get into some contact info for us. You can also head to forgegenesis.com to find our various Mm -hmm. contact methodologies, various email or social media platforms. Let us know if you've got a tricky item you want us to try and create, let us know. We'd love to Mm -hmm. do it on air. Yeah, absolutely. That'll be fun. Very, very good. Well, that was a really interesting discussion. It was. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm. I was. It was a lot of fun, man. And um, 
I'm 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 very intrigued to see what the next series holds. But do you know mm. what else intrigues me, Huli? What's that? Speaking of interesting and unique items and weapons, is some mm-hmm. of the fantastical steampunky CG goodness that was found mm. in the recently released setting, Children of Otten. Ah, yes. With uh, Jared Henry, I believe, is uh, the author of that. So, yes, it's amazing. It, it is. It, was, it is, man. I, I've been totally impressed with this since it came out. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could, like, like maybe maybe pick his brain about this setting and then talk about it in some more detail? I reckon we probably could. And I reckon we'll do that in Breaking the Mold. Breaking the Mold. So the Genesis Foundry is an exciting community of fan-created content for Genesis. New settings, new rules options, adventure and campaign modules. Not modules, but modules. And so much, 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 much more. But some creators go above and beyond subverting our expectations and our understanding of what might even be possible in some cases and breaking the mold with the work they do. And our Breaking the Mold segment is dedicated to showcasing an exciting offering available right now in the Genesis Foundry as we separate the pure alloy from the slag and we point you to the best content out there. Now, tonight's guest is the creative mind behind a gorgeous and inspiring new setting on the Foundry that blends fantasy and steampunk seamlessly into a rich new world, Children of Atten. This freshman effort from writer Jared Henry totally blew us all away and introduced not only a fresh and unique setting concept, but a set of new and interesting mechanics to complement all of it. Now, at 130 pages, Children of Atten is a setting where there are many, many worlds, or realms as they're called, each with their own unique biomes and native species. But they are unpredictably connected by pathways that might open or close anywhere at any time. But uh, where it really diverges from most fantasy settings is that uh, magic is rare and very, very dangerous, lending to more steampunk than traditional fantasy. Now, Children of Atten also lends itself to these massive, epic, universe-spanning fantasy adventures with a focus on epic battles that, that play even heavier into steampunk, uh, but bringing in siege engines and these massive weapons of war. And all in all, this product, is, it's just a delight to read. It's also beautifully illustrated, and we really wanted to dive into it. You know, we, 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 we actually spotlighted this in our announcement section um, in our last episode, and uh Shortly after that, we're able to to uh, reach out with and 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 confirm. I'm very glad to bring on to the show the author himself for the very first time, Jared Henry. Welcome to the podcast, man. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, dude, it's it is phenomenal to have you on. And I I know we were chatting before the interview started. You should be very proud of this product, sir. Um, <laughs> Thank you. And I think I think I think it's hilarious though because there were some interesting life circumstances that maybe led to this product getting released faster than otherwise <laughs> would have been released. But you know, maybe maybe we can talk about that. But but listen, for, first of all, I, you know, it's good to have you on, and our, our listeners are hearing you for the first time. And before we talk about Children of Otten, uh, I, we'd love to get to know you better. So maybe, dude, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and and your gaming career? Uh, yeah, so um, I didn't really get into tabletop RPGs until a few years ago with the uh, the FFG Star Wars system. You know, I had been playing video games, including RPGs, for a long time. And, you know, maybe since 
uh, you know, honestly, things like the community D and D episode, you know, it may have planted the seed of you know, you know, with the right people, this might actually be pretty fun. You know, it's something I hadn't you know really considered getting into for a long time, and then you know, finally, just you know, kind of looking for some you know some new hobbies for uh, you know my wife and I to get into together, and we you know, there's the Star Wars system that you know has been people seem to like it. Let's try it out. Uh, you know, we'll get the beginner game, and and so actually started playing that just the two of us, and you know, since then of I've started playing online and, you know, and other things and, and got really into that. And then so when Genesis came out, that was, you know, re- really the only other tabletop system that, that I've really gotten into. So, yeah, I've had a lot of fun with the, the narrative dice system for the last few years and, and had this uh, this setting idea that I wanted to get into it. Well, and get into it, you did. I am, I'm over here grinning ear to ear that, man, it was, and God bless Star Wars, it was Star Wars that pulled you into this hobby formally. <laughs> yep. And scant years later you've published your own setting for genesis that is the beauty of this hobby i freaking love it yeah that's pretty awesome all right um jared as you've just mentioned uh that you're relatively new to the hobby of of role-playing games and you know your your experience with other systems and other genres may be a little bit more limited to more experienced grognards (laughs) (laughs) like me or chris um but a question we always ask all of our guests uh, is what style of game, game setting or theme do you like to get onto the table when you play? Uh, in other words, what's your favorite thing to play in Genesis? Uh, so what I've actually played the most in Genesis so far has, has actually been more sci-fi, you know, a little harder sci-fi than Star Wars, um, you know, just so it's we're not doing exactly the same thing as what we were already <laughs> doing. Because uh, <laughs> uh, I haven't actually gotten in and, and run a real game of Children of Aten yet. That's still uh, I, I'm probably going to start that soon. Oh, but I kind of took a break after getting it out, <laughs> um, and then you know, I'll, I you know I, I've had my some of my campaign ideas for a long time because yeah, I want to I want to get into to playing the you know the more pure fantasy. You know, Star Wars is already more fantasy than than sci-fi anyway. But yes, but obviously, you know, there's there's style differences there. So, uh, you know, I'm excited to get into that. Uh, you know, as opposed to to sticking more to the the space side of things. So. Well, if you if you need people for your game group, bro, you know, just just you know, I'm I'm intrigued to to get some 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 playing on this setting. Um, and and quite frankly, I think a lot of people are. Uh, if you, if you were to put out the call, I'm pretty sure you'd have a full table in about an hour and a half. Big way, big yeah. way. <laughs> so that's 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 fantastic. So okay, Jared, talk to me about Children of Atten. G- give us the pitch. Tell us about it. How would you describe it to someone who's looking to purchase it? What what makes Children of Atten different from other supplements, and what kind of content can players expect to find in it? So I think one of the things that that sets it apart is how dense it is. There's just there's a lot of realms and I wanted there to be content for all the realms. So there's a lot of content overall. It, you know, most things don't have, you know, this many playable species or this many, you know, adversaries or you know, a, a whole bunch of different worlds with, you know, examples of the the different kinds of, you know, hazards or or encounters that you might run into there. Obviously, mm. you know, all settings have some of those things just by nature of 
kind of the way that I came to be making this. I, I wasn't thinking of it as a foundry product at first uh, and kind of created a base lore that required, you know, this kind of extra density in, in the world for, for me to be happy with how it came out. It came out with, you know, what I think is, you know, I, I like to think is, is a rich world or worlds rather with, um, you know, a lot going on. And the, that I hope, uh, you know, to me, the, the way I see them, they all feel distinct. You know, there may, there may be multiple, you know, desert realms, but that, you know, the way things work in them and, and what you'll find in them is still, you know, noticeably different. Well, it's got that that feel of, I don't know, this 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 sort of, well, it is multidimensional, but it's it's sort of this, uh, I mean, in, in in the best way possible, it's sort of this kitchen sink feel. I mean, mm-hmm. it's Key Forge without the sci-fi, really, when you get down to it. In terms of that yeah, same, I can, I can see the comparison. Yeah, that's that same kitchen sink feel, which which I know uh, is, is is really enjoyable. But I mean, dude, what about the development and design of Children of Atten? I mean, how was this born? Where did it come from? What did the development process look like? Because as you point out, this is a really rich, thick deep setting especially from the 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 fluff or the mythology of it yeah so it's actually an idea um kind of the the base idea that that sparked what became children of Atten is from I, I don't even know how long ago I, i'm pretty sure before i even started playing tabletop games it, it was an idea in my head for a video game just kind of like daydreaming about you know if if i were making a video game what would i do and and that's kind of uh where, where some of the base ideas came from which the book is written enough from an in-lore perspective that it doesn't actually say this in the book though if you look at the map uh, that's that's the most likely place that most that people might notice this, but but it is you know a fantasy version of our solar system, right. where all of the planets and terrestrial moons or major ones uh, are inhabitable. That that's kind of the the very base idea that that it came from was you know that's you know all the moons of Jupiter and and all these things. Let's you know let's put variants of a species on those and and have this uh, you know whole solar system that you know for magic reasons is is all inhabitable. And then, you know, some of the lore <laughs> kind of emerged from that. Um, a, a lot of it, actually. Uh, you know, I put the world that's covered in, you know, that has the the plant-based playable species and, and you know, all <laughs> the native people are, are, you know, creatures and everything are all plants, uh, is Mercury, you know, which is Nabu in, in the setting. Right, um, right. Because that's the closest to the sun. So, you know, there's just, you know, why would anyone bother being an animal there when, You've got all this sunlight available, <laughs> uh, so uh, you know there's just weird little things like that, and and there's lots of um, influences from various things or, or even inside jokes that are that are mostly for me. I put the little green men on Mars, <laughs> uh, so uh, you know just looking at existing mythology to expand from that idea of you know let's let's make a fantasy setting where the whole solar system is is inhabited, and then you know how to make that work. <laughs> Uh, and so, you know, these people don't have spaceships yet, but we want, you know, traveling. So that's where the idea of the pathways came from with the kind of random portals that open up between the realms. And yeah, it's not really talked about in the sci-fi context. I, I have batted around the idea of, you know, this would be far in the future, uh, of making a, a kind of future state of it where they could also voluntarily travel, you know, uh, do more of a sci-fi within this world. Uh, that's a, uh, a level of ambition that I'm, I'm not going to be jumping on anytime soon. But, uh, <laughs> well, what, what with the steampunk influence too, you could, you should look up Spelljammer, uh-huh. um, the, the old fantasy setting, which, which was, you know, basically a sort of fantasy steampunky pirates in space kind of thing, you know, sailing the solar winds yeah. between worlds. 
um yeah you could easily make that transition yeah yeah i've i've heard that comparison but it is in a setting that i'm actually familiar with so yeah what what often happens with you know convergent uh inspiration i think yeah totally and yeah so i just kind of you know kept building out the setting for the game that i wanted to run really which was kind of to have this sort of crazy you know there's some sci-fi in the background but really a fantasy setting to do uh you know kind of epic lord of the rings style stories in was was my goal not that the setting really resembles lord of the rings at all um (laughs) the setting influences were from you know a bunch of other ideas but but that's kind of the sort of story that i wanted to tell in it and that's that's where a lot of the influence came from as well yeah if you look at some of the incredible art that you've got in this book as well it's like yeah so if if jrr tolkien like took a bunch of drugs and, <laughs> <laughs> and started writing yeah yeah you can say that maybe. that's my vibe and yet yeah i'm i'm someone that, that likes to be really influenced by art in in the creation process you know when i'm just making characters for a game, you know, especially with Star Wars, this is easier to do. There's a lot of art out there. So I'm always looking for art of the character to kind of help me finish fleshing them out. Like I have a vague idea of what I want to do. And then I find the art and that, that helps me fill it in. So um, getting art, I, you know, I commissioned art for the playable species and some of like the equipment <laughs> and things like that in the book uh, came from, uh, you know, the way the, the artist took the original description that I had and then, you know, what he made sometimes influenced things that ended up getting into the book. And then the adversaries and stuff was, uh, was mostly me doing that. Um, it was kind of a similar process of, you know, I was kit bashing, you know, public domain creatures to, you know, <laughs> make my venom spitting spoon build rooster. Um, <laughs> and, you know, so just kind of whatever I could find that would, you know, go together and look like a cool creature. Um, and then I'd, you know, figure out what their abilities were and stuff sometimes after I put it together. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, I I mean, and the art is so evocative. Um, so you mentioned you had a lot of pieces commissioned for this. Um, and then a lot of stuff that was public domain or, or as you put it, kit bashed, which if you have the graphic design capability to do it, I mean, is a wonderful way to get some custom art. Yeah. But the the art is evocative and just absolutely beautiful. And there's so much of it. And I also want to thank you for, I mean, you have it spread across two pages in the PDF, um, but then you also, with the purchase of of the setting, um, include a beautiful high-resolution image of the the map of the realms. Mm-hmm. And, and when you look at that, and as I'm looking at it now, you can really see that solar system parallel that you're talking about. Yeah. That, that is really cool, man. That's really cool. Yeah, and that that really is, like I said, ev- everything except the playable species is me. I'm I'm not really an artist, <laughs> but I you know just took public domain stuff and bashed it together, and you know so that is a map of the solar system that I, you know, put a texture over to make it look older and and labeled. <laughs> oh yeah. Um. But yeah, that's that's how the rest of it comes together. Oh, it looks great. It is yeah. indeed very cool. I have to uh, reiterate uh, what Chris is saying there. So. Speaking of, of kit bashing uh, <laughs> or putting things together, um, Chris is always having a go at my um, segues, so um, hopefully that was a good one. Anyway, uh, when you're dealing with new threats and weapons and rule mechanics, of which obviously there is quite a bit in this supplement, um, especially when you're, you're talking about epic battles and siege capabilities, which honestly we haven't seen really anything like that before in Genesis. Um, The process of design and testing, probably even more so 
when it comes to, uh, you know, the difficulties that you'll experience, obviously that can be quite daunting. So what did the playtest process look like to you? Uh, yeah, so I got a group together and, and we kind of did a, um, like I said, I haven't done a real campaign in the setting yet, um, but I just kind of, uh, you know, railroaded uh, in, in a way that I very much wouldn't do for a regular game <laughs> through, um, you know, here, have some XP for no reason and, <laughs> you know, get get whatever abilities seem new and interesting to you, you know, g- grab a weird species and, you know, we'll we'll throw some encounters together that, that use some of the weirder things that i've inserted because you know some stuff is you know tried and tested you know through star wars and genesis and i you know i know this is such a slight tweak this is going to work but let's try this weird thing uh so we just kind of ran through a a short very disjointed (laughs) campaign where we were you know trying out you know whatever seemed new and weird in the setting (laughs) and and making sure that it worked and and yeah there definitely were some adjustments you know to make sure that you know everything made sense and felt good to use but Yep, that's the process that we all go through. Uh, and Chris, what's that called? Trial by fire. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, it was... And, and you had you the know, time. Effectively just... ran, ran a terrible game <laughs> to uh, on, on purpose to uh, to find the problems. <laughs> Well, you've got some good players then, and and you had the time. We were talking about like because of COVID, you were in between jobs and found yourself with a glut of time to work on this. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I, I have a stable job now, but it but it is the third one uh, since the start of COVID that I've that I've been through. So uh, yeah, the Ooh. temporary one became more temporary than it was supposed to be. Um, <laughs> but I think it was mostly, if not entirely, during the first gap. I was getting kind of close. Uh, and that gave me some time to really crunch down and uh, and get through kind of the stuff that I had left to the end. Um, you know, like we mentioned, this is an old idea. I've been chipping away at this for a long time. But, <laughs> you know, that, that got me through the, you know, I'm, I'm finally going to sit down and write my flavor text for all the items that aren't actually unique to the setting and, and the stuff that wasn't as fun uh, <laughs> so, that it's re- so that it's ready to get out there and, and you know, get play tested and, and get it published. Yeah. See, uh, Huli, I was it was it was it was cracking me up because Huli uh, uh, and I are on different sides of the band on the bandwagon here. Uh, you you were telling me like is like oh yeah like I I can I can write ten thousand words on on flavor and theme and, and yeah. mythology all the live long day. But God, you tell me I need to write a paragraph for each sword. I'm going to shoot myself. You know? and, me, I'm the guy that's like, oh, God, I don't want to get into mythology. But yeah, you need a description for every single weapon in there. I'm your man. Um, mm. It's true. Oh, it's that's true. that's that's hilarious. Um, okay, so for people who are are intrigued by this setting, and you should be, just looking at the cover art should intrigue you. Um, can you give us a glimpse of something exciting or unique in Children of Aten to to whet our appetite, and maybe even also share with us your favorite thing in this supplement? Uh, so I think something that's exciting about it is. Is actually the way that that magic is handled in a way that's both kind of tonally calmer than than some of the stuff that you might be able to do in, in default Genesis, uh, but it's still really you know dangerous and and present and interesting in the world. Uh, you know, there's no attack spells, no one's throwing fireballs around. Like I said, there's some, there is some Lord of the Rings influence, uh, but there's still curses and hypnotism is a something that that I added as far as a new magic action, uh, which is you know difficult to do but really powerful when it works. We had some fun with that in the playtest. Yeah, I loved I loved that new magic deck. Uh, yeah, I think the the whole magic system is. I, I really like the way it fits into the world. Yeah, and you you played off of it extremely well. 
Um, and and you treat magic as very dangerous, which which I I, I really really like, as it should be. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So our final question um, is, and I'm I'm really keen, uh, as I'm sure Chris is as well, to uh, to find out what's next for you, Jared, in uh, in the foundry. Uh, so I, I did, like I mentioned, just kind of take a break after I finally got this out there for a while. Uh, <laughs> but I have started working on a, uh, a much smaller project that, that will be, um, you know, I think I will write it specific to uh, the children event and setting, but, but also in a way that it could easily be used in others, um, which, I, which I tried to do often throughout the main book as well. But I, I think I will release this as a standalone, should just be a few pages. But essentially, uh, options for, you know, fantasy or other low-tech settings uh, for, uh, you know, when you get that maimed crit and you don't have cybernetics available <laughs> <laughs> for, uh, you know, peg legs, hook hands. Okay, that's cool. You know, things of that nature. Yeah, um, that's cool. I love it. So, you know, I, it, oh, that's fantastic. something that I realized was was missing, you know, before I get into this. You know, there's a lot of dangerous creatures in the setting. Someone might get their arm ripped off at some point. Uh, so, <laughs> so, uh, so I'll, uh, you know, I'd have to come up with it then. So, you know, let's let's figure out, you know, what a hook hand looks like so uh, in fa- this setting. Fa- Fantasy-themed, like, cybernetics, basically. Prosthesis. <laughs> That's, Essentially, yeah, yeah. That is awesome. Absolute gold. <laughs> Dude. Well, I, I can't I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to see it. Mm. But listen, listeners, if you haven't checked out Children of Aten, you you absolutely have to. Um it, it it's it's you know, every once in a while one of those new settings or ideas comes along that really sparks my interest personally. Um and diverging from the norm and and when you read it and you just said to yourself god i I, I gotta play this (laughs) but you know the the theme you focus on especially with the epic you know universe spanning fantasy adventures Mm -hmm. that that tolkien inspiration really comes through in this work Yeah, yeah yeah um and you know the the the, the, that tone, the steampunky feel, and the the new rules, especially you have for like epic level combat and siege focused combat, I think is something that we haven't seen a whole lot of in the fantasy realm yet. Mm-hmm. So there's a tremendous amount I think people can take from this. Yep. Um, well done, sir. Excellent, excellent work. Thank you, so, thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about it. Yeah, thanks, Jared. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate being here, and and you know it's always fun to to talk about this kind of passion project. So anytime, <laughs> oh, wonderful. Well, maybe we can have you back on to talk about hook hands when the time comes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> excellent, excellent product. Um, but um, look, Chris, I think we've um, we've spent a lot of time um, tonight talking about all sorts of things, but I think that it's time for us to. Uh, Answer some questions. What do you think? Sounds like a plan, Huli. I'm eager. I could not agree more. So I think it's time for Under the Hammer. Under the Hammer. Welcome to Under the Hammer, the segment where we answer your games and rules questions about the Genesis RPG as it impacts both rules, content creation, and of course, play. And we've got more great listener questions this week. Of course, if you want to, um, you know, get your questions to run to the top of the queue, just visit patreon.com forward slash Genesis and become a tier two Patreon supporter today. All right, Chris, bring us our first question. Oh, man. This one comes from Balthazar Vandermeerwe. Vandermeerwe. Balthazar. <laughs> Via Facebook. 
the the I love you, bro. The presumption in this question. All right, let's talk about it. One issue that became glaringly obvious during play is that our group feels, well, if your group feels that way, your group feels that way, that's valid. Um, our group feels this magic system was not play-tested properly. It's completely overpowered. We started playing Terranoth, and I have a player playing a rune master who has four yellows and a lesser rune. He just endlessly overwhelmed every scene with magic. And because Strain recovers so easily in the game, and the way he constructs his dice pool with a minor rune stone granting a free effect, the difficulty level is so low, he is rolling staggering amounts of damage each time. This is completely over the top. It makes the kitted-out warrior look like a weakling. We've studied the rules, and he appears to be doing it by the book. Even the player was feeling disgruntled, since he didn't feel he earned the power he wields. Oh, that's that's unfortunate. I know there are those who will feel offended because they love the system, but it's fr- but it's frustrating because I want to love this game. Could I be getting the rules wrong? Can you help me to not lose interest in this game? Wow. Uh, wow, that, that's a really heartfelt question, dude. Um, I, I, I feel you. I really do. Um, that's a really good question. Mm. Um, the one thing I will say, because I know you've got some things to say, Chris, um, one thing that I will say that uh, Balthazar has, this is the first time that he's ever um, jumped into Genesis, um, and I've had a few conversations with him since, and uh, yes, he's, um, you know, he had a bit of a wrong take with a few things, but, um, you know. He, what, did he, what did he have a wrong take with? I'm curious. Look, um, uh, for a start, as far as um, how somebody gets to four yellows in the first, like, session. Yeah, good. That, that, that um, shouldn't be physically possible. No, it's not, um, with, uh, with that in particular. Um, and I think he also sort of, uh, as far as the way that strain goes, and this is something that a lot of people get wrong, cough, cough, I know you did in the live play, um, <laughs> but it's something that everybody does wrong, uh, and it's something that which, uh, to me, is a really uh, important thing to remember when doing magic or anything resembling magic. Uh, and that is particularly with regards to strain. Uh, strain that to cast a spell, it costs two strain. That strain Correct. doesn't happen when you decide that you're going to cast the spell. That strain happens at the end of everything. So that is including after you've calculated your what you're doing with advantages. That's true. You can you can spend your advantage to recover lost strain, but only if you've already lost it. Yeah, correct. you're correct. I commonly yeah. I commonly forget that. Yeah, and it's something that a lot of people do, and it's the yeah. balancing mechanism in this system because what yeah. that means is that, um, sure, you have to work out that you are going to lose two strain at the end, no matter what you do. Okay, which could you tip you over the edge? But remembering that most of your spell abilities that you're adding on with effect are going to be needing advantages to be able to power. So yeah. you've got the balancing act. Am I going to add burn to this fireball or am I going to recover the two strain that I will need to be able to survive casting the spell? So, uh, so yeah, that's, that was something that, that he was getting wrong as well. But, um, you know, it's a big learning curve when you're uh, buying yeah. into a new system like this. So, uh, so yeah, that was that was probably the the biggest issue. Um, is he is and, he is he down in your half of the world? Uh, no, he's not. Uh, he is. I don't think he's. Um, I believe that uh, he's from Europe somewhere. Uh, off the top of my head, and um, uh, yeah, he he's got a, a group there. 
he's been bringing people up to speed um, on his ongoing campaign, uh, which clearly they're all enjoying now. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's there was that. So I think that that's a, a bonus that uh, we've, uh, you know, ironed out some of the issues, uh, which there always is going to be in any new system that you start. So, uh, but um, yeah, he's he's having a lot of fun, which is really good. That's 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 really good. So yeah, but what is your opinion? Well, I, I, want, I want to say first of all, Balthazar, if you're if you're listening to this, man. Okay, so so if you're if you're in Europe, there is a a high possibility that that uh, for you or especially your your obviously obviously for for you, I mean you you wrote your question to us in English, but if 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 you are comfortable having a game run for you that is GM'd in English and be, because I, I, I apologize, I am, I am only monolingual. Um, and if you're, if your play group is comfortable having a game run for you in English, I will wake my ass up in the morning and I'm telling you right now, and I normally would not do this. You contact me. I will run a one shot for you. It will be magic heavy and I will show you how it, how it, how it should be going. Okay. I will run it for you. I will run it for you group. Okay, and we'll record it live, and we'll put it on this freaking podcast. Okay, mm-hmm. S- straight. We'll up. do it. All right that that is, that is that is how passionate I am about how great the magic system is here. Um, I think with the with the color you've given me, Huli, this sounds like a scenario of somebody saying they they to to use D and D parlance they 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 create a level ten warrior and then think fifth edition is broken because he creamed a goblin in one round. Okay, <laughs> right. <laughs> that, that, that that's kind of the same analogy getting four yellows on on any magic skill that is insane okay is it possible to have four dice in the pool even as a beginner character of course it is all right getting to three ranks or much less four ranks that is that is really that, i mean that's that's it's possible to get two yellows and a green without even expending XP outside of maybe a, a characteristic boost, right? If you if you happen to have the right career that happens to give you the free ranks you need, a free a free rank. I mean, and that that's possible. But but keep in mind that you can still, as a beginner character, never get above two starting ranks. Okay, and then after that, even if it is a career skill for you, that's another. For Pete's sake, that, that's another. Uh, uh, 15, 20, that's another 35 XP you've got to spend just to get the two extra skill ranks. Okay. I mean, that's, 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 that's wild. Okay. So, so that alone, I think, I think it's a huge part of the problem. As Huli said, you will suffer strain. It doesn't matter what your role is. It doesn't matter how much advantage you roll. And if you spend it to recover strain, you've already taken, you suffer your strain when you're done. So you're going to suffer strain. Most magic users drop pretty quickly. The other thing, too, that a lot of people forget when it comes to magic, and this is one of the big balancing factors, is you don't use the standard rules for threat and despair. Mm. You have a special (laughs) table that you use for threat and despair because it is twice as bad. One threat on a magic check is worth either two strain or a freaking wound. All right? Player's choice. (laughs) All right? One threat does that. All right? So as a GM, especially if you've got a, a, a character with a dice pool that powerful, they need to be having difficulties that are, that are in kind. That means they need to be fighting threats that have degrees of, of ranks of adversary, which should be impacting mm-hmm. especially the difficulty of damage spells that are being thrown at them, attack spells. Okay. Yep. 
the other the the other the other key thing too is because it doesn't matter if they get a free effect, like they still gotta have the advantage to pull it off, but but don't forget that adversary applies. And outside of attack spells, you are also have, as is covered uh well in GM and advice from, from guests we've had on this very show from 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 writers and people like that, outside of attack, you are fully capable and free to make these checks oppose checks as well. Yeah. All right. Mm. And and that's that because because how do you combat four yellow dice in a pool? You go up against a four four difficulty pool as well. All right. Yeah. I don't mm-hmm. care if it's yellows versus purples. Even just laws mm. of probability, you're going to be getting threats. It's just going to happen. All right. Yeah. And those are going mm-hmm. to, if properly spent, decimate the magic user. Decimate. <laughs> so that that's I don't know. That's that's my that's my thoughts on this, Huli. I mean, uh, the other thing to take into consideration as well, when you've got uh, any sort of magic use, it says that if, uh, and this probably doesn't really form part of his question, but a lot of the time when people are using uh, any sort of magic users, they uh, are wanting to do things that they think that is going to, you know, replicate uh, a skill use for something else so that they're going to be able to use magic for everything else and they're never going to need to spend uh any uh xp on other 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 than athletics or whatever else and that's not true because the rules actually state is that if there is something that you want to do that you would normally do with athletics or or a, a normal skill it should be harder using magic that's something that it's it's spelt out in the core rules than when talking about magic. Yeah, I I, I completely agree. Ma- magic mm. use in the system is supposed to be incredibly dangerous as well. That's mm. just what I, I want to return back to. It's supposed to be incredibly dangerous, and and it's it's your it's your negative dice capabilities that really manage that. So, but mm. but Balthazar, I'm dead serious, man. I'm dead serious. If your group can handle an English language DM or a GM based on where you are, um, if that's cool for you. I will offer right now to spend four hours of my time to run an actual play for you on this show because I am that passionate about your question and that passionate about magic in the system. And you will all play magic users in my game. He's in the Netherlands, by the way. I've just uh, oh, realized. dude, dude, I've I've got I've one 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 of our other D twenty radio lungs and one of my best friends. I have been lives in Rotterdam. I have spent time at his home uh, on a couple different trips. Uh, Danny, um, so yeah, dude. Most Dutch people are pretty good with English, so yeah, dude, I will, I will offer, I will offer that right now, Balthazar. I will offer that right now. Mm. Take that up, Chris is an amazing <laughs> GM. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, thanks, Balthazar, for that question. It was great, um, and uh, hopefully, uh, your campaign is going along really, really well. Our next question is from I am Alex. I wonder if his name is Alex. Anyway. Um, I am Alex asks via our Patreon Discord. Uh, spears are important in my game, and I want to have Woomeras, a spear thrower used by the Australian Aboriginals, as an option. How would I create this? Equipment? A talent? My thought is to allow characters to use agility instead of brawn, since it would take more than raw strength. It would add range to the attack and possibly damage. Can you help me? Well, well yes, yeah, I can. <laughs> we, 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 we can. Why would he? Why would he think he would be able to want to use brawn for this? It's it's going to be a ranged weapon. Exactly right. Um, that uh, I think it's because, as I mentioned before, 
spear doesn't appear in the ranged weapons in uh, Terranoth because uh, it's one that's predominantly used as a uh, as a melee weapon, but below that it has some details, and and I'll I'll go into that. Um, but um, look, it's on page ninety four if you need to know. Um, and the spear is listed with with uh, the profile under the ranged weapons. Uh, and it provides uh, the sorry uh, in the melee weapons, and it provides the following template: that it's range skill, it's damage plus two, um, it's critical of four, um, it's range is short, accurate one, and limited ammo. So yeah, which is cool. Which is interesting because they've actually um, said the damage plus two. I'm going to double check that because I'm not sure that I'm right. But it, it's still applying strength there to a ranged weapon, which is really quite interesting. Well, and that, that that's that's a very interesting one, and it's it's totally valid. And when it comes to a thrown weapon that's mm. ranged, it makes sense that you would use your your brawn for damage like that, but not to build the pool. And I, yeah. I think that's important. I'm a hundred percent right. It is damage plus two under the profile. Yeah, which is cool. Like so, I, I like the 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 Woomera is is an Australian Aboriginal atlatl. It is. You're you're familiar with the atlatl, right? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I mean, that's a that's a very ancient weapon that's been used around the world. It, I mean, we don't have common record of it being used for warfare, but I mean, it's so it's so uncommon it, it, to be historically recorded. Do, do, do you know? what I mean, because I mean, I, I hate to. I hate to profile, but you're Australian. Uh, I mean, do, 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 do we do, do? Are there? But but seriously, I mean, are there are there accounts of of the Woomera being used for warfare at all, or was it strictly used for hunting? Look, um, there are some records of it being used uh, in warfare between tribes, but for predominantly, it's used uh, just used um, as a hunting weapon. And look, but for those who don't know what. Uh, a woman is. I'll, I'll just briefly sort of touch base on that. Its primary use is for traditional hunting and spear fishing, although not necessarily a weapon of warfare, as I said. Uh, the woman is used as an extension of a person's arm to give it greater range uh, and to make it move faster. Uh, so uh, it, it's not something that one could use in melee combat, for example. So, uh, you know, I guess in this case, agility is still the appropriate attribute. Uh, because we're talking about a ranged weapon. So, you know, mm-hmm. the, there's really no changes there. Uh, so what it does is that they put the spear in this device. Uh, it just gives momentum through leverage to make the weapon go further and with uh, with a, a, a greater punch, effectively. But yeah. uh, So for me, and this was my sort of opinion when we started talking about it on the Discord, was that it's going to increase the range from uh, yeah. the thrown weapon. Uh, I think that it probably gives the equivalent of strong arm as the talent, so it would allow the weapon to be thrown it up to medium range as opposed Absolutely. to uh, short range. And the Absolutely. spear is still going to be accurate, uh, so no changes there. I'd also suggest maybe prepare one, since it's not just a matter of pulling out a spear and throwing it. There is some sort of loading of the weapon to uh, to do that. I would almost give it prepare two. Oh, really? Okay. Well, I mean, I mean, as a possibility. I mean, I, I, I would play test with it in 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 a round. Getting getting one of these things out, loading it, and doing it. I've I have used an atlatl. I've actually played around with one. It is it is not 
quick to load. Once you have it loaded, yeah, it's very quick and very, very crazy. But it takes mm. it takes a good bit to get it set up. And yeah. like the equivalent of a round, I don't know, for mm. a weapon that's going to be this inexpensive, a thrown weapon mm. at medium range, I think it's worth considering. If, if yeah. you find it to yeah. be too much, though, yeah. But I would say prepare one at a minimum, right? Mm. Yep, absolutely. And lastly, I don't think the way to deal with this is as a piece of equipment. It's not really a talent. Um, to me, I think that it's more like an attachment that you would put on a spear. And a spear has a hard point of one. And it's not very often that people use that one for anything. So I think that you would have this as an attachment, but you would have some wording in it that it is actually removed or it's separate from the spear. And, uh, you know, the spear might need to go through some modifications or whatever else to be able to be used with the woman to make it an attachment it would then have a damage increase of plus one initially, and he may consider additional modifiers, maybe one or two, that increases maybe that accurate by one and then increases the damage by one. Or even he yeah. might want to increase that to long um, instead of medium. Well, okay, I want to I put this in perspective for you, though. Sure. In Boy Scouts, I built and used an atlatl, okay? Okay. Mm-hmm. I... I, 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 I've used it. And the guy who, and, and dude, medium range is totally acceptable. That's like, that's like table stakes. Um, and you can get, stu- and we, we got to where we were stupidly accurate at medium range. Okay. So I think the accurate quality is fitting. The dude who taught us how to do this though, he had one where he had what I would consider to be a long range atlatl. And what I mean is that when I used it at the age of 13, I tossed a long arrow and I'm not, I'm not kidding. It was, it was the circumference of an arrow shaft. Okay. Mm-hmm. This quote unquote spear or dart, but it was five feet long. And yep. I tossed it a hundred yards. Okay. Wow. I mean, and it, it flew like you would not believe, but the, the smaller ones couldn't go that far. It's a function of the actual, it was a function of the actual spear. So I think long yeah. range is actually reasonable, but the thing is your accuracy goes out the window at that point. Yeah. Uh, if you had an accurate quality, it like, like I love the idea of using this as an attachment that has the prepare capability and increases your range and gives you the accurate quality. Yep. Mm-hmm. But if you had like a long range version of this that, that brought it up to long range, mm-hmm. I think it should actually re- not only remove the accurate quality, I think it might even have inaccurate one. Yeah. Just realistically. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Totally brings new meaning to shaky spear in the park. Oh, I'm so sorry. Go on. <laughs> Our last question. Uh, Mm -hmm. comes in from Steve Assay uh, via Facebook. He says, In my campaign, the party happened across a small village. The leader of the townsfolk approached the PCs for assistance in helping them to fight off a group of raiders who had been plaguing them and the surrounding region for some time. The village is ill-equipped to deal with the situation, as the village consists of farmers, not soldiers. The PCs agreed, so I'm going to be running the scenario as a skill challenge. Oh, good for you. Mm. However, (laughs) if the attack occurs regardless... What are some possible rewards slash consequences if the PCs pass or fail? Is a skill challenge even appropriate? Well, the answer to that oh, question is the skill challenge is definitely appropriate. And I think this is skill the best challenge is always appropriate. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, so, yeah. What's your thoughts? Well, okay. You're the skill challenge wizard. 
Yeah, yeah. So, so, what? So, he wants to know what some of the rewards and consequences could be if they pass or fail. Yep. Let's come to that last. As far as 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 like, look, you could have the party go off and find the bandits and take them on, and that could just be a standard combat encounter. Of course, if you wanted to do yep. this as a skill challenge, I would recommend drawing inspiration from Seven Samurai or uh, yeah. the Magnificent Seven. <laughs> which is the same film <laughs> or uh what season one episode three of the mandalorian i think you know wh- where it's like it's like it's like it's like all right farmers we're gonna teach you how to fend these bandits off right and it becomes a skill challenge where the party is teaching them how to do this and it's like you know we're gonna dig defensive trenches around the town we're gonna put up embattlements you know you have it's a montage where you're teaching them how to shoot and train you know and stuff like that and think Mm -hmm. of all the wonderful skills you could put in place for that leadership obviously okay charm Mm -hmm. obviously Mm -hmm. uh athletics uh for for digging trenches knowledge tactics or something similar like that um for education Mm -hmm. or or building battlements actual combat checks which would represent training these farmers right and 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 teaching them there's 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 a whole plethora of things you can you can do here Mm. you know to, to get them ready and then if you successful it plays out narratively where they attack and the villagers the the farmers rise up and and drive them off and out of the region or kill them all right Mm. then you can have a lot of fun with stuff like threat and despair because that can relate to dead farmers (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right Vill- villagers who didn't survive the incursion even though everyone succeeded right yeah. um yeah. even though they may have succeeded in the skill challenge yeah. <laughs> you know you could depending on how complicated you want it to be you could do um it depends on how long you want it to be you could do if you want it to be average you could do like 15 net successes before three failures are achieved three failed checks mm-hmm. not three failures mm-hmm. three failed checks if you wanted it to go a lot longer with a higher degree of success you could do 20 Mm-hmm. net successes before five failed checks are reached and yep. that really gives you the option for consequences because you've got the the greater chance of despair and threat being rolled there um mm. so so that plans go awry all right but if they succeed in the skill challenge yeah they, they the village drives the raiders off and their rewards could be everything from a home base in the town uh which mm-hmm. is a fantastic thing if the village if the farmers don't have much money to give um, and and the PCs n- need some kind of reward that is material. One thing I can highly recommend is information. It's like we don't have much, but we'll give you this, and it's a small chest, and there's <clears throat> a few coins in it, and uh, a few pieces of jewelry, and at the bottom, what looks like a treasure map that's very mm-hmm. old and leads them on a whole new journey for an actual combat encounter that's quite dangerous with some serious loot behind it. Yeah. And if they fail, then. The villagers are unprepared. You know, maybe that leads to the decimation of the town and the slaughter of most of the townspeople who then have to leave and abandon the town in disgust. Mm. Maybe it leads leads to the villagers deciding to leave the town before everyone attacks and just leave all their livelihoods behind. And the consequences Mm. of that quite simply could be extremely bad reputation for the PCs. I mean, I don't know. What do you think? One thing that you can do to sort of say, is a skill challenge uh, appropriate? If you want to borrow directly from Star Wars, you do have mass combat rules. And if you want the abridged version that actually has some really good examples, if you can get your hands on it, Friends Like These, which has been done by our very own Keith Kappel, that has some really good examples of how to apply mass combat with small little scenarios. 
So you could have that they have to fortify this particular uh, place, as Chris mentioned, but um, you have so many troops and that could be represented by certain areas which are going to represent your village that you have to protect. So you might have to protect the north, south and east wing because the, the area directly behind you might be the ocean or a large lake or something like that that the bad guys don't have the means to be able to get around. Uh, and so you've got to defend these three points with two dice worth of uh, villages. But the villages are really hopeless, so you might have two setback die uh, for each area. And so you have to invent scenarios that you can start to whittle that away. Perhaps that you want to, um, you're a more social character. So you might have to talk to the neighboring village and maybe negotiate a trade agreement with them because they've, there's been some sort of big drama that's gone on between the two, which stems back to the uh, leader of the village that you're trying to defend, that um, the his wife basically was murdered by um, the uh, the leader of the, the other village. So you've got to negotiate that to then get more people involved, and that's going to increase the numbers. And then at the end, when you finish the, uh, you know, you might have two or three rounds to, to basically do that. And those rounds can go for a long time. But the PCs have to establish where they're going, who they're helping, uh, and really make it a, a difficult choice for the PCs so that they have to start splitting themselves up. So if you've got one PC who is always the support character, they have to work out who they're going to go and support because all of this stuff doesn't necessarily happen at one time. Mm. So there's, there's all sorts of things that you can have, and then at the very end, you start a big mass combat. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll see the mass combat rules in some way, shape, or form from, uh, from Edge uh, turned into the Genesis version, because I think that it's absolutely fantastic. But if you get a chance, uh, get either friends like these, or I can't remember which um, the leadership book, Rules of Engagement, I think is it's called. Uh, see if you can get uh, your hands on that because the the mass combat rules are fantastic for uh, for Star Wars and they apply easily to Genesis. Um, just with uh, a little bit of um, you yeah. don't even need to change anything; it's great. So that's another way to do it as well. But um, yeah, definitely, there's some options for you. And uh, you know you you want to make it interesting without just turning into a dice roll is what am I suggesting? Exactly. But do a skill challenge because skill challenges are awesome. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Good questions. Good questions. All. Good questions. All. Mass combat's awesome too. I love you, Keith. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh well, Huli. I think that does indeed bring us to the end of yet another show. Indeed, it does. But we'll be back with a new episode in a few weeks' time as we get back to our regular schedule. Uh, and uh, yet again, we must admit to being very, very busy with real life. Um, and, uh, you know, that's what's kept us uh, away from the podcasting. But so's holidays, and we've got to have a break too sometimes. Uh, so, but uh, in the process of uh, planning and scheduling an episode uh, with, um, you know, some special guests to help uh, us tackle a review and a uh, QA episode as we keep on promising for Keyforge uh, Secrets of the Crucible. So, um, you know, keep an eye on that. But uh, Chris, 
we all also want to know what other cool show topics everyone wants us to cover, right? We certainly do want to know that. And as Willie mentioned, guys, we are, of course, still accepting questions about Secrets from the Crucible. We have gotten precious few questions about Secrets of the Crucible. Get them to mm. us, guys. If, you know, we, we want them. We, they really help flesh out that kind of t- show talk. Um, but honestly, if you have questions on that or any other show topics or mechanics you'd like us to dive into, let us know. How can they do that, Huli? Well, they can email us at forgegenesis at d20radio.com, or they can post it up via one of our many social media platforms where we have a dedicated post calling for questions, including Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and, of course, the um, FFG forums for as long as they're around for. Um, And uh, you can just search for at Forge Genesis. Now, I've also been seeing some great conversations on the D20 Radio Discord channel and, of course, truly dedicated uh, conversations with our Patreons on our very own Patreon Discord server. Yes, and we would love to hear from you all. Don't forget, you can also join, uh, as Huli alluded to, the even larger discussion in D20 Radio, in the D20 Radio Facebook group, where we nerds congregate to cross-pollinate. And of course, don't forget to give us a like or a follow us as well on any of our social media sites. You can also please drop us a review on those sites or on your favorite podcatcher, including iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more. Um, You can also visit us on our website uh, at forgegenesis.com. So what is next for us, Huli? What is our next show going to be about? Well, Chris, you mentioned it a little bit earlier. We're going to be taking a look at armor and the way that it's constructed using the Genesis rules. Uh, We'll be uh, taking a look at, um, well, pretty much everything. If you can slap it on yourself to protect you from the incoming fire, we've got you covered. So we'll be in a very similar process to what we've done tonight with the uh, the rules for creating weapons. We'll be doing that for creating armor. Very exciting. That's awesome. And mm. listeners, if you have questions for this topic as well, mm-hmm. shoot us an email. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, don't forget, even if you don't have any questions about armor, you might have some in relation to gear or to attachments. And don't forget, we will be doing future episodes about that topic in this series as well. So, um, yeah, that was an episode and a half. Uh, But that's a wrap for us for the moment. Thank you for listening, and uh, we hope you will join us next time as we continue to explore the Genesis role-playing game. I'm GM Hooley. May your triumphs be many and your despairs be few. And I'm GM Chris, wishing you peace, love, and good gaming. Thank you all again for joining us. And remember, the Forge Podcast helping you hone your gaming edge. The Forge at Genesis Podcast is a proud member of the T20 Radio Network. For more information about the network, visit www.t20radio.com. The Forge is a fan-generated podcast. All the information provided on the podcast, social media, and related website is not affiliated with Fantasy Flight Games or any of their licensors. The content of this podcast remains the property of the Forge at Genesis RPG Podcast and is intended for educational and informational purposes only. The Genesis Role Playing Game, Genesis Logo, Genesis Foundry, content, and all material remain the property of Fantasy Flight Games. All products available on the Genesis Foundry website remain the property of their respective companies and individuals. For more information about the Forge at Genesis RPG Podcast, visit www.forgegenesis.com. Thank you.